Hello, creeps. I bid you welcome back to the Eldritch Review Podcast. I am Dr. Jack Al Creeper. The Eldritch Review is the podcast dedicated to reviewing and discussing horror movies from anywhere in the 1920s to the 1940s and beyond. Before we get to today's episode, I would like to let all of my creeps and the Monster Fam know that this episode is the second to last of season two, with the season finale being next week. I have no idea how and why the time flew by so quickly, but I am so grateful for such an incredible season thus far. Season 3 of the Eldritch Review is going to be a very special surprise that I will not reveal until the launch date. Initially, I was going to reveal it all, but since I'm such a huge fan of leaving people in suspense, I'm sorry creeps, but you're going to have to wait, but I guarantee you will definitely enjoy what's coming next. I can, however, say that the release date for Season 3 will be announced on the Season Finale episode next week. Be sure to tune into that episode, you will not want to miss it. Last piece of horror business, I want to dedicate this episode yet again to my partner's father, Ron. As I mentioned in the last Abbott and Costello special, these jokers meant a lot to him and myself as well, and it has quickly become such a major aspect of our conversations. He's someone who grew up listening to them on the radio and seeing their specials on television and in the theaters. I think it's so exciting that he and I have struck a chord over it and developed a new unique bond over these incredible actors. Hey, there's just under two more months until I can come see you again. I love and appreciate you big time. On today's episode of The Eldritch Review, I am so pleased and excited to welcome another returning guest on the show, a contributor for Universal Monsters Universe, the man behind Undiscovered, the unheardum of nerdum, a cryptid enthusiast and researcher, and one I'm proud to look up to and love like an older brother, Creeps and Ghoulies, please welcome Austin Gillyhill. Hey, Bubba. Hey, baby brother. Great to be back, my man. Ah, uh, Bub, I'm grateful to have you back on the show, or as you like to say, back in the lagoon. Last season when we did Creature with Jughead, it was a total blast to have you on, to talk to you, to hear your incredible Julie Adams story, for God's sake. And as the host of the show, it was incredible to finally have two guests on one episode. I really hope to do another project with you fine gentle monsters in the future. But until then, please tell us what you've been up to. What's going on on Undiscovered? I friggin' love the Scooby-Doo week you just did. Thanks, brother. Um, yeah, so, yeah, my name is Austin. Uh, Austin Hill. Uh, at, over at Universal Monsters Universe, or UMU, uh, that Parker, of course, is a part of. Uh, they call me Austin Gill Hill, or my close friends call me Gill. Um, but, yeah, I, I do, uh, I have an Instagram, uh, um, a personal one just for all my nerdy love, which is a big part of my life called um undiscovered nerd sharing unheard of nerdum i love to find stuff um you haven't seen or maybe you haven't seen 20 years so it could be just pure nostalgia i love to hear people say oh i've never heard of that or i haven't heard i haven't heard of that in 20 years that's music to my ears so yeah i just did a a big scooby-doo week we talked about all kinds of stuff and um one of my favorites was the blair witch parody that cartoon network did with scooby-doo back in october 99 uh, that was the Scooby-Doo project. That's a real thing. Go watch that. It's pretty wonderful. Um, but yeah, man, just always, always got the wheels turning, monster wheels turning. I, had, I got some stuff coming up. This I actually have a very special anniversary, uh, Abbott Costello anniversary, speaking of, that I'm working on in the summer for one of my favorite films by them. Um, I'll leave that a surprise as well, Mr. Suspense over there. Um, and you know, speaking of, and this is a, the listeners, I have not rehearsed this. Uh, Parker doesn't know I'm doing this. I got my copy, a VHS copy of... Uh, 
Abner Costello Meet the Mummy right here. I'm popping it in in the VCR um, as we speak, and I'm going to have this playing on old school VHS tape in the background uh, on mute, of course. But uh, that's how I got into Abner Costello was VHS. My dad renting tapes of Universal Monsters and of Blood and Lose. So um, I've never played this VHS before. I just got a whole bunch of new tapes recently of, of Blood and Lose. So this is its uh, christening voyage, but. Uh, I'm excited to talk Bud and Lou, one of my dear, dear loves, with with uh, one of my dear loves in Parker. Hi, uh, well, you're too nice, man. Honestly, you know, for anybody who follows UMU, anybody who follows what we talk about, this is the real tape tomb happening live, and it's not even Saturday, so that's pretty sick. Yeah, man. Right now, I'm watching a. What's a? I interrupt you. I'm sorry. This is a great. It's an ad playing advertising other Abbott Costello VHS. This is. I remember this a million. Fourteen ninety eight suggested retail. That's what it said. Man, gonna say that I'm really, I think it's really awesome that you're doing that. You did that when we did Creature. So I think it's really special when like people I have on the show or even just in general, they watch it in the background while they're talking because then it's like, it's even more fresh in your mind. And man, I'm just so excited to talk about this with you. As you mentioned, today we are going to talk about another fun and exciting film starring two of our most favorite jokesters of all time, Charles Lamont's 1955 special feature, Abbott and Costello Meet the Mummy, starring Bud Abbott billed as Pete Patterson, Lou Costello billed as Freddie Franklin, Marie Windsor as Madame Rontru, Michael Asarna as Charlie, Don Seymour as Joseph, and Kirk Ketch as Dr. Zoomer. I gotta say, anything with Lou Costello and Bud Abbott in it is automatically golden for me, just like you, Austin. Their dynamics together on screen, whether they're doing it intentionally to be funny or they're just acting, they are absolutely maestros of their craft. Costello especially never fails to make me laugh, while Abbott is always the one to slap some sense into him, which really makes for such a hilarious and essential balance to the performance. I definitely appreciate that they worked with Universal to give us these candid classics because without them, I'm certain we would still love these monsters and we'd still be so serious about our passions, but these guys made it so that we can enjoy our monsters, be serious, but also laugh and take away from the scary for a minute. I just, God, I fucking love these guys. They're the best. Um, man, my, my love for them is, is, is so deep, you know. As, and in the in our wonderful monster community, which I which I love being a part of with all my heart, I think I'm I'm known to be the um, the Gill Man guy, um, and if which I'm so, I'm Gill Hill, and I'm so proud of it. And if I could be greedy and have one thing, I could be another guy of it'd be Abbott and Costello. When I say my love with them is even with my dad. So my love of Universal Monsters was my dad renting tapes of Blockbuster, uh, Hollywood Video. I mean, at least in Colorado, where I've grown up and where I am now, people were, you could, you could uh, grocery stores, King Supers also had VHS you could rent. My dad was looking at all of the above to find Universal Monsters for me or new Abbott and Costello. I mean, we've seen all those wonderful covers of the 90s VHS tapes. A lot of people don't realize that how many Abbott and Costello movies there were and they all got the exact same beautiful cover art. Um, so I was getting all those. So my love, it, it, I think it really blossomed with Fra- Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, but it has, which I have now, you know, it's almost the point of memorizing. I've gotten to see it on the big screen. I absolutely, that's, you know, everyone else, that's, that's legendary. But, and I know Ian did a great job talking with you about it. You know, Ian's the man, uh, Ian Bates of Universal Studios Monsters. But man, I, and especially Lou is legitimately a hero of mine. I hear it in my own comedy when I do stuff. I did improv for many, many years. Uh, and I cite them as a direct source of what I do, what I did. Uh, my kitty's name, uh, my pride and joy, his name is Lou. And uh, I finished recently uh, the def- what I consider to be, to be the definitive biography about him, 
with the most perfect name called Lose On First. Um, of course, after Who's On First, and it's written by his youngest daughter, Chris Costello. It's an out-of-print book printed in the early 80s, and I'm going to share some of that knowledge with you guys today. Um, but um, seriously, Abby and Costello, I think they are unsung heroes of Universal, of Universal Monster fandom um, and of cinema. So, um, and this is another gem, and I can't wait to do a deep dive into it, into the tomb, a literal tape tomb with this one. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you mentioned, you know, cinema, and I'm glad you mentioned Universal Monsters because these guys did it all. And one of the things I couldn't help but think about is they really defined comedy. You know what I mean? When we look at old variety shows and old comedy shows, the way that we, the way that they had it, you know, it's crazy because yes, we had the Three Stooges, but you know, no offense to anybody who's a Three Stooges fan, but I really love Abbott and Costello a lot more because I feel like Abbott and Costello, it wasn't like forced comedy. It wasn't like, you know, hey, that's funny, right? Right? It's like, they they just did it. If it was funny, it was funny. If it wasn't funny, oh well, keep the scene rolling. One of the things I watched today while I was making this episode, actually, is I was watching the restaurant scene where they're in that restaurant and he's asking him to... Like, like, all we have is a quarter, so don't order anything. No matter what they say, no matter what I say, just don't do it. Whatever you do, he's like, all right, all right, I'm good. Okay, let's do it. So waitress comes over. He's like, you know, what do you have? And he's just like, I just want a turkey sandwich and a cup of coffee. And she looks at Lou and is like, is there anything for you? And he's like, no, I don't care for nothing. I don't care for nothing. And, of course, Bud being Bud is just like, like, you sure? You could, you could get something small oh you'll be fine you're you're hungry i bet like come on get something he's like fine i'll have a milkshake he slaps the shit out of him and is like what are you doing all we have is a quarter man what are you oh my god i couldn't stop laughing dude it was so funny and like i said like it wasn't forced comedy it wasn't like you know like they slap and they look at the camera hey that's funny right it's like slap keep the scene rolling if it's funny if they laugh hell yeah if they don't oh well we're still rolling and i'm like that's genuine good comedy that's genuine good entertainment and like i said man they're they're just maestros of their craft and i think it's really sweet and i think it's amazing that they mean so much to you as well oh man it's uh not i don't know if a day goes by or i don't think about them that sounds weird but i mean that's how much i love them they're and how much what they did is ingrained in my head and 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 yeah that bit you just mentioned you know they they actually you know they would have a couple writers and they would work with the writers, but they would have these gags, right? And they would, and there was, you know, the movies were, they had these, you know, sometimes they're built around some of these scenes, but, um, and they would rework some of the gags. There's been a couple of those where Buds and Sis don't do it, you know, so you can't do this and makes makes Lou think that he that he should do it and then punishes him. People for, you know, they started in vaudeville. They're like burlesque acts. Um, I might get the math wrong, but I believe Bud's like 12, he was like 12 years older than him. And he had another, and he was a straight man which is you know that's the guy that's that's they're both funny but the straight man sets up the funny he sets up the jokes he's not the goofball you know he's the serious he's the grounded one and then and then um you have lou came in and like you know just both of them together were just un unreal they were writing a lot of their own stuff too of course but you know their big thing was when they went to radio which is this is late 30s early 40s and they were dominating it and then people don't realize too that when they were performing on radio they were in front of live audiences so if you listen to Abbott and Costello's show, there's a roar, a rip roaring crowd in front of them, and that's real. They were performing in front of people, um, and they went into movies. And I'm doing a quick brief history, but they had a um, the first ever, and I might be paraphrasing a little bit, but their very first ever solo movie, which is called Buck Privates, about them joining. This is World War II era. Universal wasn't doing well at all. 
Um, and it was like, we might be closing the doors kind of thing. And I think they weren't crazy about Abbott and Costello, but it was like, it was a gamble. And Buck Privates killed. It was like the most, I think it was the most profitable movie to date for Universal. Um, and it is, it is hilarious. They ended up making a sequel a couple years later, Buck Privates Come Home. But it, um, and it brought them back from the brink. It at least was one of the main contributing things. And I was at Universal um, not too long ago, about a year and a half, two years ago. And I was like, I was like walking around, I mean, uh, in Florida, in the studios, I'm walking around, I'm like, what if Bud and Lou didn't make that movie? Would this still be here? So at least in this fanboy's dream and heart, I like to think Abbott Costello saved Universal and that everything that came after, we have to thank Bud and Lou for it. But, um, but, uh, but of course they went into big money makers for Universal for a long time and a huge lengthy career um, with Universal. But man, their, their impact, and of course people kind of think of who's on first, but it was a million things. Um, and their charitable work, what they did for, for others, for kids, for, especially for the military. Um, yeah, insanely generous dudes who were, I mean, that's the other thing. They were, they were, they worked tirelessly. They were family men, but they, man, those guys, I feel like they just, they just didn't sleep, but you know, years later, we're still celebrating it. So they did, they did it right, you know, for what, whatever, whatever it took. Absolutely. Absolutely correct. I couldn't have said that any better. Absolutely. So according to the synopsis from IMDb, Abbott and Costello Meet the Mummy 1955 tells the story of two bumbling American explorers who stumble on the discovery of a lifetime when their search for a mummy leads them to a sacred medallion that holds the key to buried treasure. Alright, so the first point I really want to talk about, I really want to talk a lot about their comedy in this movie because I feel like this movie was a little bit more like comedic based than it was like monster based. So the first one I want to talk about is at the very beginning of the movie where they get into the restaurant and they're watching the show in Egypt and the first bit the waiter comes over with a burning shish kebab and is like I'll have a waiter for you right away. Of course Lou knows no better so he's like meat's on fire throws a cup of water in Bud's face and totally just drenches him and he's like come found it and leaves. He doesn't think anything of it. He's like, oh, whatever. You know, me was on fire. No big deal. And so next thing you know, waiter comes back. He's like, sorry for the wait. It'll just be a few more minutes. Again, doesn't think about it. He's like, your meat's still on fire. Throws water in his face again. I swear to God, call me stupid. But I laughed my butt off at that. And it's like, like I said before with their comedy is like, it's not forced. It's not like you know they had to do it in order to make somebody laugh or like hey throw water in your buddy's face that might make people laugh like you know i'm pretty sure i'm almost certain i mean you know i'm sure it came from a bit one point or another but you know i'm sure that came off the top of his head as well like an improv moment where it's just like hey i see fire water if there was a laugh track people would be dying i would be oh man lou is lou is improvising constantly yeah yeah that's what i mean man you got i mean i encourage anybody listen to those radio shows you know, listen to, uh, look, watch their Colgate comedy or watch the, they had a TV show too. Man, people, they can't even get lines out. They're yelling to get lines out because people are laughing too hard. I mean, it's, these guys were, they kind of ruled the world during this era, which is it's just amazing. The book I was reading, they were saying that they, that it was estimated they did Who's On First um, by the time they split up 15 thousand times that's a lot because they were contractually obligated to do it for every radio performance i think so on top of all their charity stuff they did who's on first what's on second that whole thing fifteen thousand times i can't think of anything i've done fifteen thousand times it blink you know like 
obviously a lot more than that but man like that's dedication that's and to keep it fresh every time i mean these guys were literally they were just they were they were writing the book as it went absolutely that's the best way to put it so the next point i want to talk about is something a little bit funnier and it's also something that makes you go hmm is how did Clarus the mummy escape his own freaking tomb and take it with him as soon as okay so let me backtrack a little bit so lou costello sees the tomb sees the mummy in it freaks the hell out and looks for his buddy who if if i'm being honest they're a little bit like scooby and shaggy in this instance and in meet frankenstein and he's like raggy monster but the thing is is when bud abbott comes into the room where claris was resting the whole mummy and tomb is gone and i'm like okay how in the world can this undead creature escape this freaking quickly and what he just picked up his own tomb like it was a suitcase like job's over see you later like you know like what in the hell i i I took it as because it cuts because i know what you're talking about because lou he's got his blith helmet pulled down real low and he's like that's your your mother you know he's talking they're going back to the, the mother joke mother joke mummy joke um they go back in there and it's gone and it cuts back to like a different like a bottom of the staircase and then there's like the bad guys over the tomb i took it that they were nearby and they moved it because because claris is still in there when they when they put like putting the lid back on i think because they want him to be awake right so i think i could be wrong but i think they i that they it's funny because i actually been that part because i just happened in the background as you're talking about it i took it like they they moved it to, to keep him hidden so he, unless I missed something, that, that's how I took it. That's honestly what I thought it was too. I honestly thought that it had to have been those thieves because I'm like, how else would this happen? There's no way this undead creature is going to take his whole ass tomb and leave. You know what I mean? And I was, and I watched the rest of the movie and I'm like, they literally moved the dead body of Dr. Zoomer. Like it was nothing like, you know, he went this way, they went the other way, you know? So I definitely think that's possible. And that was something I thought about too. Cause at first I'm like, wait, what the hell? And then like, I saw them like move around the dead body everywhere that Lou went, that dead body was there. Okay. They're moving the tomb right now. So the guy came back down the stairs, Lynn went back on. They're moving the tomb. I'm like, you're, I, I, you made me second, you made me second guess it. That's kind of what I thought happened. They literally, they just picked it up and moved it again. So that, I think that's our answer. I really think they just, I think it's probably too fast and too clunky, but of course you got to suspend some disbelief on that one, especially in the, in the, in the, in the mid fifties and forties. But I think the bad guys just scooped it in and, and swapped it out. Cause they just picked it up again and we're moving it somewhere else. And we're probably not going to see where they went. They just kind of carried it off camera. So I think, I think the bad guys uh, stepped in to, 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 to swindle poor Lou, make him a liar again. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, and I'm glad that we were able to answer that because, you know, not that it would like ruin my experience by any means. I mean, it's hilarious nonetheless. But I mean, as far as the way I'm concerned, I love continuity in my movies. So I was watching this with a big fat question mark on my face. But no, the fact that you just answered that, I feel better now. <laughs> we had good timing. Yeah, the VHS again to the, to the rescue in the background. Tape tomb never fails, my man. <laughs> so now I want to talk about the return celebration of Clarice the Mummy. Now, for anybody who doesn't know, I'm a huge fan of culture. 
I really love different culture, traditions, rituals, foods, like you name a culture, I probably love at least one thing about them. And to see this scene, granted it's probably not traditionally Egyptian, or maybe it is, I don't know. I haven't researched that thoroughly yet, but I really just love how beautiful the synchronized dance was and like the drum music and the choir, even though the choir was like a choir of like followers of Claris. Nonetheless, it's gorgeous and you know, like I said, I just love tradition like that because you know you don't really see that very often you know what i mean unless you go to that country or unless you like watch videos on like say youtube or you watch a documentary on like you know national geographic but it's crazy it's really crazy but it's really a beautiful thing so whether it's actually tradition in egypt or not it's beautiful nonetheless i would venture to say it's probably not it was probably like a hollywood idea in the 50s of what an audience would think egyptian would be because um, this is, of course, a very, you know, a little bit naive time for moviegoers. Um, movies are becoming more and more mature, but um, yeah, it, it is, but it, but it is visually wonderful. Um, and I also want to do a quick mention on the act that they're watching in the beginning when they're in the restaurant with the whole shish kebab on fire thing. Uh, that is also really, really good. Um, uh, there's some really cool, I'm sure these are already rehearsed things, uh, especially that was already, I think, its own act they probably brought into the filmed it but um this was done more for the movie for the return of uh i'm asking for some for some clarity <laughs> just kidding okay um but that's also a great thing about this era is that um i don't mean to keep <laughs> harping on like the broads the pantheon of Abbott and costello but it was not uncommon for there to be songs for them to be dances there's there it's there are tons of them, especially the andrew sisters i mean oh my gosh and hold that ghost and in the navy and so many movies they're wonderful um, it was different than monster movies because it's tough to stop everything and have a singing, uh, uh, a singing moment. And this is a little bit different. So I think it was about as close as they could get. Cause I, th I don't know. I think it was just like, I think maybe movies felt like they had to compete with theater at the time, especially in the forties. So it was like, they had a little bit of, they had movies literally had a little bit of everything. And I kind of, I kind of feel like that maybe that was, it's part of that. Um, and Abin, oh, so it's an Abin, Cost Abin Costello movies, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, big old dance numbers and full like i mean they brought in all kinds of cool people um of and of all ethnicities and ages and types and i which was so wonderful of them and ahead of their time um but there's some really really good ones um and that one was beautiful and then and definitely none of them really looked like the one that happens in ANC meet the mummy so um definitely stands out yeah for sure for sure well going off the cultural point i really kind of want to talk about another running gag that ran throughout the movie that also really made me laugh it's the snake charmer bit if you watch in the movie when they're trying to get away from the lawmakers because unfortunately lou screwed over his buddy bud and took a picture of him with the dead body of the doctor so now the lawmen of egypt are looking for him because they think that he's the guy who killed him and so naturally they have to put on disguises and they have to disguise themselves as egyptian market people and there's one part where lou is like trying to be in his disguise and trying to like act natural so to speak and he starts playing a snake charmer and naturally these snakes come out of these bins kind of like indiana jones style they just come out of the bins out of nowhere and it's just hilarious because he's so freaking terrified of snakes and it's the running gag throughout the whole movie he just finds a snake charmer plays it a little bit snake pops out because you know snakes love that sound so you know the snake's grooving snake's vibing snake's enjoying it and he's like oh hell no and it made me laugh because i'm like you know i know a few people that are 
afraid of snakes and I don't laugh at their fear. I mean, I, I can understand because I have arachnophobia, so I can understand being afraid of something like that. But as somebody who had a pet snake when I was a kid, I can't hate it. I love it so much. I'm like, shit, if I was playing a snake charmer and a snake came up to say what's up, I'd be like, can I pet you? Like a dog? I think that's part of it too. I mean, yeah. I don't know. If, I don't know if I'm gonna pet a king cobra, but I, I think I, um, it's a cobra, right? It looked like a cobra. I don't know. It was a very weird 1950s like fake snake. Right. Yeah. I, maybe I was a double take. I was like, I'm pretty sure it's a cobra. Um, that's got to be one of the most memorable scenes. Um, other than some really awesome monster stuff at the end. Um, man, the snake stuff is so good. Um, if you were to ask me on the on the street, hey, what's your, what's a memorable scene from Meet the Mummy? I'd, I'd, I'd I would have visuals of the snake scene right away. Um, yeah, and again, I think, <laughs> and that's, I hate to say it, but I think, speaking of culture and stuff, I think that was, like, a very Hollywood thing that, like, the snake charming, they, like, I was sure there's a ton of cartoons at the time, too, that was, like, that's what, that's, like, our Western thing of, like, I'm not saying it's not a real thing, but um, to put that in there, it wouldn't be, I don't think, outlandish, because I think that was something that we kind of built up in, in, on, on, on this side of the pond about stuff to, that's what we should be seeing when we see a movie about, about Egypt and um, or, or, the, or, or the marketplace and that kind of thing. And um, I actually love the marketplace. I think it's it's a gorgeous set. I think it's way cool. And they have tons of extras. And they all look great. And they're in, um, but uh, yeah. So I, I I love. It's a great great bit. Um, and Lou, it's that's all this is, man. Is that we gotta just watch Lou reacting. There's a cobra right now. It's coming up over his head. That, that people gotta react to. Sorry, it's it's watching Lou. That's all this is. It's watching Lou react to something that's gonna scare him, and that's the big, big thing. He's playing the thing. The snake's looking down at him. He starts panicking. He does this little hitching thing. I mean, it's it's it's. I mean, it's gold. Cool. That's the thing. It's it's and that timeless. You know, you're talking about Ron. I mean, he watches now. He laugh. We show it to a ten year old. They'd probably laugh. I mean, this stuff is. It's it's just funny. It's just it's simple. It's family friendly. That's a big thing too, and it's what's accessible to all ages and. Um, it's a simple bit, but it's it's uh, it grows and he sells it, man. Lou sells it. He really does. I think like, you know, going off of your theater background, you'll probably appreciate this. And for anybody who's listening, if you're into theater or improv or both all at the same time, is I feel like when he does make reactions like that and when he looks at the camera and has that like, oh shit moment. But like, of course, he doesn't say it because 1950s. But like, in the back of our minds, we can only infer that he's thinking that he's probably he's probably thinking I'm breaking the fourth wall. He's probably looking at the camera like, oh well, <laughs> you know. And that's the impression I got, you know, because one thing I noticed, and I'm no theater buff. I mean, I love the theater. I I was in drama, so I have a respect for it. Um, but I I didn't take it in college or anything, so I'm not as versed as you and maybe a few of my listeners are. But I really love the fourth wall breaks. And I really love that a lot of people, even beyond Abbott and Costello, you know, a few people would look into the camera and like show a little reaction and then keep moving, you know, and, you know, I don't know. I think that that's really cool. I kind of wanted to play at your theater background and the theater background of some of my listeners. So what do you think? I mean, give me a, give me, break it. Wait, ask that, <laughs> ask that, ask that, ask that again. Cause I'm not sure I caught the, the main, the main question well i mean i wasn't really asking a question as much as i was just kind of making a statement yeah like you know i feel like whenever like lou looks into the camera and kind of shows a reaction and but he's looking right at the camera instead of like looking at like you know say 
Bud or like anybody else in the movie, it's kind of like he's breaking the fourth wall a little bit. And I noticed that a lot of characters did that in the movie. So yeah, I mean, I was just asking like in your like theater background, like what do you think? Do you think that they're doing that? Do you think maybe not? I'm curious, man. Uh, no, no, okay, I'm with you. That I don't know why I heard it differently in my head. No, yes, um, a thousand percent, thousand percent. He's he's winking at you. He's winking at winking at us. He just did it a second ago, actually. Um, Bud said something. I have it on mute, so I don't want to interrupt us. But Bud said something, and he looked at the camera like, "Are you freaking kidding me?" Um, th- that's just putting us with him. Um, that's just it's from it's it's it can it's either two way. I think there's two points on that. It's either one, you break the fourth wall, you can take the audience out, or I, I'm of this belief, you bring them in. Um, you know, I think Lou thought that too. Remember, these guys are old school vaudeville burlesque live radio performers. So he's working that camera. I mean, these guys. You know, they were, they were, there wasn't a film school for these guys. They figured it out as they went. So I think this was like, it was their way of, like I said, we, we, we'll keep saying this, just like that snake charm bit. They were writing the book as they went. And I think looking at the camera in those moments was them um, bringing some of that, literally addressing their theater background, but also saying like, I know you're watching. Um, I think that's, it's, it's Lou, it's a connection with Lou that Lou was trying to make. And that's exactly what he was, what he, uh, so that's what it is for me. Like just that one little look he did when you know that was that's his connecting with you. I love it. I love when the, the guys are looking at us. I don't know if Bud does it, which is funny. I think it's mostly a Lou thing. Um, but uh, uh, I very much appreciate it. And later on in their Colgate Comedy Hour, they were doing stuff right to the camera. So I think they enjoyed that quite a bit. Definitely. Definitely. I think I don't think I've ever seen Bud do it either. I think it's definitely an exclusive to Lou because Lou is the one that he had the face and he had the reactions where, as you said in the very beginning, you know, Bud is more of the, you know, straight guy. So he's more of like the stand up straight and don't be funny, you know, even though he was trying to be funny. But like, you know, what I mean, like it wasn't like an intentional move. And I think I, I don't think I've seen him look into the camera either to break the fourth wall. Yeah, nobody, you know, that was a tough thing because it's hard to find a good straight man. Um, and they worked so they worked so 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 well together. They literally they didn't want to leave. They you know they didn't want to work with anybody else after they worked with each other. And they worked through with each other for um, uh, I think 21 years, um, which is unreal. And um, they went through a lot, a lot, a lot together, um, per, you know, privately in terms of like each other's lives. And they really were partners. Um, they probably drove each other crazy a lot. And I think they eventually did. You know, they split up actually not long after this movie. I think it was um, about two years or so. Um, but uh, but they did a long, long run, and and I think, uh, um, I think Bud, they each had they each had roles, and the hard thing, no one wants to be the straight man because you don't get as much laughs, but um, but you also can't get laughs without the straight man, so it's 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 a very uh, symbiotic relationship. That's a true statement. I couldn't have said it any better. Here, here, this is why we have somebody with a theater background, man. Somebody with a theater background who loves these guys, you know, just as much as the next guy, if not more than the next guy. I think if there's most guys next to me, I think I love them more than the next guy next to me. But yeah, <laughs> I love them. I love them more than most. 30 year olds in 2021 probably do but yeah go ahead <laughs> go ahead go ahead so i'm gonna make a pretty controversial statement here people are probably gonna be fighting with me in my dms now but i, I gotta be honest with y'all this one Avin costello meet the mummy 1955 is equally as if not funnier than Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein 1948. And I say that because even though I love universal monsters and really just monsters in general to the very depths of my soul, I gotta say that in all honesty and all actuality, that movie was really good because it had all of our favorite monsters in it. 
You know what I mean? And especially a, a reprisal from Bela Lugosi's Dracula and Lon Chaney Jr. as the Wolfman. But then you get to this one and, you know, yes, Eddie Parker is in it, who, of course, was Lon Chaney Jr.'s stunt double in all of the Cars movies. But apart from Eddie Parker and, of course, Abbott and Costello, there really wasn't anybody else that, like, you watch this movie and you're like, oh, shit, that's you know whoever from whatever movie you know what i mean so i think that they now had a little bit more opportunity to be like more comedic and have a little bit more fun not saying they didn't do it in meet frankenstein because that movie was really really funny too but i think if we're comparing apples and oranges here i really think that meet the mummy is comedically a little bit more on point for me um that is indeed controversial that surprises me you think that um i i don't want to give a long-winded answer i uh, there isn't a movie uh, and i have when i say i have all of them i have all of them um i have the non-universal i have stuff that they colorized i have vhs dvd blu-ray shout factory um cds from radio stuff um so I think they're always funny, so my brain's a little more spread on this. You know, I um, I think Abbott Costello made Frankenstein is funnier. Um, I know you're talking about strictly comedy, but for me, Park, I have a hard time separating a little more of the historical aspect of it. Um, I, 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 a lot of people don't know like how, how how much tragedy was in Bud and Lou's lives privately, especially Lou. And there wasn't exactly a tragedy during this film, thankfully, but um, this was their last film at Universal. They were actually, for lots of reasons, really burnt out and angry at Universal. Um, at the time up and down um, and they were having a hard time with each other um, as you as you every kind of, I think we mentioned it but Lou wasn't feeling good he battled romantic fever on and off throughout his career I mean it knocked him out at pivotal points and it was really bad but Abbott was um, drinking a lot um, and he actually um, his health I think is probably near its worst during this movie uh, and I think they both don't look their healthiest uh, aesthetically which is sad but Lou also insisted on doing all of his own stunts. You know, he had his, and I don't know if you know this, his brother Patrick was his stunt man. But Lou always did, because he, he looked like Lou. But Lou was actually really big in the stunts, so he did all of his own stunts on this one. Um, there are some really good bits in it. There's also, for me, also a lot of bits I've seen in other films. Um, all the monster movies did pretty good. This was actually very successful for them. So it was a great way to end their ties with Universal um, at this point. Um, but so I kind of look at it and I kind of, I know Lou wasn't feeling great and I knew Bud was having some drinking stuff going on. And so for me, I have a hard time with some of that stuff. And I think, uh, Meet Frankenstein was, um, only a few years earlier, but I think it was a happier time for them. Um, so I don't know, man, I think I, I laugh when I watch this movie, but I always watch, I always laugh, uh, laugh when I watch these movies. Um, and it was just a really intense time for them. This is a very historically significant movie for Abbott and Costello because a lot was about to change for them and they were kind of at the end of a long, long cycle. So I think it's, you know, I think it's super funny. Don't get me wrong. I just, man, I just, I, I guess I find me Frankenstein a little happier, and, but that's like, but I have a completely different biased view of it so i it's, it's a weird perspective on that one yeah and i mean you know i definitely agree with you because like you told me yourself and even me in my own research like i've seen that it really was indeed a very upsetting time for them a very tragic time as you said and it really sucks because you know we love them so much we don't want our favorites to ever suffer ever i guess you know i just made the statement of course because again coming from a comedy perspective they like you said they are both funny and i will never say to anybody that abbott and costello meet frankenstein is not funny because it's freaking 
fucking hilarious. Just as funny as this one. I just said that this one was like a tad bit more hilarious because I feel like they were able to now concentrate on like doing comedy and like making like a comedy monster movie. Whereas like when they did Meet Frankenstein, it was like they were funny and they made a comedy monster movie. But at the same time, it was kind of like everybody was really into like oh wow like Bela Lugosi's back or oh Lon Chaney's back especially Lon Chaney back then in the 40s so I mean I'm not saying like they were outshined by any means but I think that they were definitely a little bit more like it, there was a little bit more of a distraction factor you know what I mean there were a few moments where I was dying but then there were a few moments where I was like okay I'm more like I, I'm watching this like with the monsters you know what I mean I don't know how to describe it I don't I just I like things coming from a different perspective and that's kind of the impression I got. No, and I, I do want to say something to add to your point is that there, there, I think there's a little more pep in their step on Meet the Mummy because they had so much turbulent stuff toward the end with Universal. This was they, they knew this was their last film, but I think they also were probably just kind of having fun and doing going all out um, and kind of leaving it behind. Um, and maybe this isn't the best point, but I will find a point. I do have a couple passages, passages I'll read from. Uh, this biography uh, that talks about Meet the Mummy a little bit, um, but uh, but I, but it was their last one, and I think maybe they were happy to because Lou really wanted to go off and actually do some dramatic solo work, and he actually did a little bit of that, and I heard it was yeah, I, I, it was very good, um, more like kind of live stuff and some TV that's harder to find, but um, so but I think it was it was they were eager because you know it's it's transitional and there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes. Um, I think it was also exciting because it was transitional so there might be a little more pep in this step for that reason yeah absolutely i think that in any case i think that it was a amazing i think that they're all amazing in their own ways and as i've said a hundred times and i'll say a hundred times more i hope you're not tired of it by now is anything that abbott and costello touched or like anything they touched in their lifetime is just certified gold for me you know what i mean like they could literally read me the bible and i'd be like wow i'm interested okay no i mean it's they yeah they could read they could read a menu i mean they could you could watch them go to you know yeah it just they 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 had their thing down and they knew how to do it they knew how to play their parts it was just kind of fill in the blank say we got these lines do the bits rehearse them um and it was like you know it was it was it was i don't want to call it easy money but i mean that in the phrase of that it was like they were loved they were good at what they did and you know and they had fun doing it lou was always um causing antics and chaos in a good way and on set so you know they really like so that you know, they ruled the world it was like in a it was in a, <laughs> a guy just okay, okay i'm sorry it's in the background a guy just walked by with the flaming shish kebabs it's a quick little moment and now that we talked about it i noticed it more lou like watch him go by with this little bit of fear of like uh, when he walked by with it but should i put those out but he didn't do it but it was just a funny moment um when the, when the waiter but anyway but yeah but uh but yeah man they they knew exactly they had roles and they and they filled them they were born to play them they're born to play them no doubt no doubt about that one so the next one I want to talk about is really another big interest of mine, and that's the dinner theater performances that we watched in the movie. Now, in the very beginning of the movie, as Austin mentioned, and as I mentioned, they had a little bit of like an interpretive dance, like acrobatic moment going on, which I thought was really sick. And then towards the middle of the movie, there's a lady who's performing in the same theater, in the same like dinner theater area. And I just, 
I really love that. I'm kind of a nerd for that. Um, and the reason why is because I love old noir movies in addition to old monster movies. And one of my favorite movies and one of my favorite performers of all time is the movie Gilda with Rita Hayward in 1946 and hearing this lady sing and you know i don't know if like she wrote this song and she was performing it or if it was just kind of off the top but it really made me think of rita hayward singing put the blame on mame from gilda and like i said i'm just a nerd for that i love noir in addition to monster movies because it's just it's black and white it's mysterious it's mystical it was a different era in history like it's just so much cool with that so i just need to put this in here because I really think that seeing performances like that and really just hearing songs like that in movies, it's such a lost art. And it really kind of makes me sad because it's like, shit, I would give anything to go back in time and watch Rita Hayward sing Put the Blame on Mame, you know, live or hearing this lady sing her song live or even, you know, we'll celebrate Christmas a little early, go back in time to... Uh, White Christmas with Bing Crosby and Rosemary Clooney. You know what I mean? Like, I could go on for days, but I just love that side of Hollywood. I wish they would bring it back, but I don't think people are into that anymore, which I'm like, I am. I'll be the only one in the theater. I don't care. I'll pay lots of money. No, I think I think it's out there. I think that's, you know, people weren't streaming stuff back then. You know, they went out and that's the people perform. You went, you went to a, a place and that's why it was so prevalent common in Abbott Costello movies, because that's what the nightlife looked like, was these great singers. So you had to go up and down the strip in Hollywood and hear this, you know, this person that could be the next this or the next that, you know, um, singing by a piano. And, oh man, I think that'd be, I think that'd be pretty killer. And um, sometimes it's, it's funny, it became so routine for the time period. It was almost like a, almost like a, it was just part of the background to have that and now it's 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 different you know um it makes it it's still around though you think of like jim carrey's the mask and stuff like that i mean it's you know there's some great scenes in that with like that that kind of thing and i think it's there i don't think it's prevalent but i think it's still a live park i think um you know i think as long as we i i would happily uh sing next to you playing piano or vice versa anytime park you know let alone that's the best seat in the house right there <laughs> honestly man i mean i'm no singer i'm no rita hayward i'm no betty grable or anything but i'll try i'll definitely give it all i got and you know it might not be as beautiful but hey i'll i'll do what i can i might sing you some old you know Bing crosby songs like it's been a long long time because that's what i know <laughs> we'll make an amulet burger um, a special of the house. We'll see. One lucky guest will have an amulet and the burger, just like Bud and Lou, and they'll get like a, a house prize or something. There you go. No, you know what? You know what you need to do is you need to, you and I were talking about Burger King prior to this recording because of all the new cool things you got. And what if you did a kind of like a Burger King special where it's like give them their sandwich or give them their food and then yeah, give them the little teeny tinker toy of like, yeah, the little amulet and then tell people like, make sure you pass it around to your friend. You don't want to be the one with it <laughs> oh that'd be funny yeah it's just based on not wanting it you get it but then you don't want it <laughs> hey i am in there's so many things i want to put on kickstarter and this is one of them now thank you austin you can do, you, you can do you can do a jingle uh find the amulet it's it, it's, it's what you don't want to get 
that doesn't make sense. I'm just trying to rhyme it, but we'll we'll work on it. I mean, no, I mean, I think I think that fits. You don't want the amulet, so shit. I mean, yeah. So shit, that works too. <laughs> Got the amulet. Oh shit, yeah. So talking about our dear Abbott and Costello, I want to talk about Bud Abbott for a minute. And for all of my diehard horror fans, I'm looking at you, Jughead Jones. Is Abbott looks like he could be a direct relative of Vincent Price. Now, when I watched this movie, especially, like, I, I had a moment where I looked down to write something in my notebook because I was like, oh, I need to have this in my episode. I look down, I'm writing my note, and I look up and I just see, like, he had, like, this, like, sunken look on his face and he had the pencil mustache. And I was like, holy shit, that looks like Vincent Price. And I knew it wasn't, obviously, because it's Abbott and Costello. It's not Vincent Price and Luke Costello meet the mummy. But, you know, that would have been rad, but it's not. And I was just like, whoa, like, that's that's crazy. So I had to put that in there because I know there's a lot of Vincent Price fans in the monster community. Also, shout out to Brandy, the queen of the hop jibby. And what's up, Brandy? <laughs> but, you know, like, I just feel like that this had to be mentioned for all of my horror fans. Dude, I never noticed. I never made that comparison. I totally see where you're coming from. I love Bud with the pencil stash. He rocked that in a few movies. And I think it's cool. Um, this is a weird one. My dad's always had a goatee my whole life. Um, but Bud, on a low-key level, always reminded me of my dad. And I don't know why. I mean, like, in the face. Not that my dad's like, ah, you're dumb. You know, not like, not in, in antics. And Bud was actually very, very soft-spoken in real life, I think. But, and that's, maybe that's part of it. But, like, my dad's pretty chill. Um, I'll show you a picture of him, you can let me know what you think, but I just always got a dad vibe from Bud, um, from, for me, but I totally see the Vincent Price thing, um, and of course, in Abbott Costello meet Frankenstein, uh, Vincent Price does the ca uh, voice cameo of uh, Invisible Man in the finale, but I don't know if they ever cross paths with him again, I feel like I'm drawing a big blank on something, but that would be very, very cool to get a Vincent Price, Abbott Costello official, full feature length, um, but I'm happy for the cameo, but yeah, dude, Bud's rocking it. Um, uh, maybe something where Bud has to actually like uh, step in for him. People think he's that he's Vincent Price or something. That that would be pretty cool. I think, I think, Vin, I think Vincent actually kind of probably towered over. I think he was like six four or something. But I think Bud was like five nine, five ten. So, um, but um, but that man, but then seeing him together, that would be me. That part of part of the funny. Um, but yeah, man, I, I, I love it. I never thought of that before, but now I can't unsee it. But Bud Pencil Stash, Vincent Price. I know, man. Honestly, I couldn't unsee it either. And, you know, like I said, I'm such a huge horror fanatic. I love me some Vincent Price. And, you know, I just think it's so special. And, you know, the way I see it, I mean, obviously we can't now, but if we could go back in time to the 40s and the 50s when these guys were everywhere and doing everything imaginable, is I would love for them to make a movie called Abbott and Costello Meet Vincent Price. Because if they could make a movie all about the killer Boris Karloff, why the hell can they not make a movie where they meet Vincent Price? And literally, it would be so badass. So remember in Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, there was the House of Horrors, and like it was like a wax museum and monster museum of all these like oddities and like monsters and shit. It's like, what if Vincent Price had his own house of horrors, or his own house that is a haunted house, like House on Haunted Hill, but, you know, before that. And, you know, he just brings them in, and, you know, that's the gimmick, is it's like House on Haunted Hill, but not as creepy. It's a little bit more funnier. And, yeah, it's like, but in, it's Bud Abbott and Luke Costello meet Vincent Price. I would watch the hell out of that. Oh, dude, that would have been... 
it's it's hard to top meet Frankenstein, but that one might have done it. Um, if they did it, you know, if they you know played it out right. I mean, think of House on the Hill, House of Wax to integrate both those kind of settings. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the comedian Red Skeleton. I do know Red Skeleton. Yeah. Yeah, Bud and Lou. I think they were really good friends with them. I think I remember. I remember watching one of the episodes of the TV show, and they dedicated their episode to Red, who wasn't feeling good, who was school or something. But same era. Go look it up if you haven't seen it. But this is because uh, he had musical acts, and I'm not making this up. It was like. It's Boris Karloff and Vincent Price, not lip syncing, live singing this really um, happy, gleeful song that's comedic behind a fake car, the wheel of a, behind the wheel of, of a fake car. Vincent, it's like the most between, but for both of them, the most unhorry thing ever, and that's what makes it so wonderful. It's trying to be the, and it's actually them. They're actually singing. Um, that's probably about as close as we're gonna get because Vincent, man, he was showman. He was he got into the horror stuff and I think he found it and loved it. But I but dude, he was a performer and I think he he did a ton of not horror stuff when he was a kid and I in his twenties and stuff. I think he I think he would have uh, jumped the opportunity to do more of that stuff and more comedy. And of course, you need to think of uh, the Egghead and Batman, you know, and Batman, the Sixties Batman show. So I, I think he was down for anything. I think just like Lou. He would have, and, and Bud, he would have completely sold it. That's what Vincent was so gold at. Even if the script was weird, the budget was weird. Vincent Price came in, your movie all of a sudden got awesome because he just sold it so well, you know. Yeah, no doubt about that one. I've always been a diehard Vincent Price fan for as long as I can remember. Me and my brother. That's why I gave him the shout out. And you know, he's just he's special to us. So anytime I can think of Vincent Price or watch a Vincent Price special, I always jump at the opportunity. Hence why when you did the tape tomb yesterday and I was able to be like, I love the Invisible Man Returns for this reason. I like to think that he's that he was in the movie theater cracking up a button Lou. I think he definitely was, and I think he was definitely laughing. I think that dude loved to laugh. Was right there gleefully enjoying now watching everything happen on screen. I'll agree with that statement, absolutely. So next point I want to talk about is, it's a little bit more of a funnier like comedic bit. It's the hands trying to take Lou's jacket because they think the medallion is in it. So naturally, Madame Rontru finds them in the cafe and is trying to seduce him into being like, hey, you got the amulet, right? I kind of want that. And so she's hoping that like by hanging out with him, like that'll kind of entice him to do it. But naturally, she takes his jacket, hoping that her goons will like reach in there while they're not looking and take the amulet that they think is there. And yeah, like from every angle of that freaking room, dude, like the carpet, the lion that's on the wall, the pharaoh statue that's on the wall. Like, I'm like, is there nothing in this room that doesn't have like a little hole like socket where you could put your hand through? And it made me laugh so hard because it's just like, oh my God, I've never seen this before. And it's like, yeah, like it almost makes me afraid because it's like, dude, like, you know, yeah, that's creepy. This is maybe a dumb take on this. I guess I'm just, it's just my night to kind of keep giving weird opinions on things it kind of creeps me out that scene kind of weirds me out um i think it's so well done the um and i'm not easily scared and of course i love i'm a horror kid but there's something unsettling about it and how seamless for me i think it's like the door frame or the door that's one of the weirdest ones for me and it's like it's just something about it and any muschetti does this a lot there's something about creepy about hands any muschetti who directed like it and he's doing the new flash movie he loves the use of hands. And there's something about hands that are attached to something you can't see that's unsettling. 
and it for some reason it's it's like that scene's supposed to be funny but it actually kind of creep it's 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 more just like eerie to me than it is hilarious um because you just can't see him below you can imagine this guy just trying and he's anxious and it also tells me that they have all eyes on lou and also why the f do they have this room full of like slits and holes and and and, and like hideaway little to break away things they can just slip their hands through so that's creepy too so i i know it's for i know it's for the bit so it's just probably not much thought going into it but that's like that's a that's a creepy room right there um so that that scene kind of weeds me out and it, it was happening a little bit ago and i meant to bring it up i'm like that hand scene man that's that's got some spook level on it for some for me for some reason it, i feel silly saying it but but it's a great i mean it's so well well done though really well done and it, it looks really seamless i mean they nailed it oh absolutely honestly don't feel silly about it because it really is unsettling i mean i wasn't laughing at it i mean i kind of had a mixed reaction part of me was like man what the hell like i was so confused because yeah like how is these slits just so like perfectly aligned to where they see him and it's like let me reach for you and it's like what and then yeah it's definitely unsettling i mean i'm not afraid of much either because i'm right there with you hashtag horror kid for life but yeah i'm like like how what like so much confusion but yeah no it was a very well done scene it was definitely meant to be funny i don't think they were intentionally trying to freak anybody out by that but i mean it, it was funny when she was kind of like trying to like be nice about it and then it got to the point where she's like all right i've had enough where's the damn medallion you know and then he's like oh I, I ate it and like everybody loses their mind they're like how did you eat it what and it's like well you see here's the deal my buddy gave me a sandwich and he kind of put the medallion on it and you know i'm i'm luke costello so i ate it <laughs> so the next bit i want to talk about another hilarious classic amazing comedy bit is bud abbott dressed up as the mummy because he thinks that it will cause a diversion when really there ends up being three mummies all at once there's claire's the real mummy there's abbott dressed as a mummy and i don't remember if it's joseph as the other mummy or if it's charlie but one of them is dressed like another mummy and they're all like trying to get away from everything and they all just bump into each other and they're like oh i'm sorry and then claris is like get out of my way and like you know wreaks havoc like only claris knows how to do but i mean it made me laugh because you know again it's just one of those cheesy silly comic movements that like you know it just you can't help but laugh at that i i think arguably park that's the uh the top of the movie um it's a it's a great grand finale bit um you get your guys and they're monsters too um yeah they become the monsters i think that man that's such that's so good i think that's the top one of the whole movie um uh, yeah i mean the funny thing is the mummy and maybe i'm sorry if i stepped on your if i stepped on your bandages here if you're already going to mention this but the mummy is not in the movie very much eddie parker's uh, claris is not in it very much um and he's he looks great i wish he was in it more um but uh so but i think they kind of make up for it a little bit because we get triple mummy action um abby costello me dr jekyll and mr hyde which of course stars boris karloff and mr hyde is designed by Millicent patrick who designed uh, uh gilman as well awesome awesome design uh something similar happens where lou um gets injected as well accidentally and he becomes a mr hyde then there's a problem of uh, who is actually Dr. Jekyll's Mr. Hyde and who is, uh, I think his name is Tubby in that movie. Like, like his actual name is Tubby in that movie. But uh, yeah, I think they probably learned from that one, Parker. And they're like, well, we made Lou the monster and that was gold. Let's, let's, let's keep that going. 
So the, you know, this is the era where shamelessly just for using lots of great ideas and dressing them up and changing them up. Uh, and I'm all for it. You know, if, if remember the book again, the book was being written as it went. So um, who's to say you couldn't do you couldn't do that or you couldn't do that? Um, moves were made very quickly back in this in this era and very simply. So um, I I love it. I love I. I if there is, I would be, you know, if there's a deleted scene where Blood Abbott becomes a Wolfman, you know, and meet Frankenstein, I think that would be killer. I think it's awesome. I love that. I love when they become the monsters. I definitely think it's like a more hands-on approach, you know what I mean? Because people just expect it to be Abbott and Costello as themselves or as different names like Tubby or as Chicken Wilbur, you know? But I think that when, yeah, like you said, when they become the monster, it becomes all the more funny and it becomes all the more like interpersonal almost too because then it's like wow okay it's not just meet the monster they are the flipping monster you know and i don't know like I, i'm into things like that too yeah i think that's i think it's it's one thing to meet them and i think to put them in the same shoes and put them all in the same it's just it's just it just it's it works to have them all on screen um i wish i was in a opening night house and that scene happened i bet they freaking were laughing and especially back in the day on saturday morning matinees you know kids were throwing popcorn at the screen you know kids freaking love these guys i mean they have all three mummies up there i bet kids are shrieking and laughing and i don't know how many of these movies were actually scary i think i think meet frankenstein probably had some good scary stuff i think like like you you said this earlier parker that um meet the mummy is more on the comedic side so i don't know how scary this one was but i bet it was you know back when horror was so much more tame this was probably a little, a little more still kind of edgy so i bet when all three of them were all in bandages i bet people were freaking out i bet great to be in that audience yeah no kidding man you know whenever i think of back when abbott and costello were on the radio and where they were on television and when they were in the movies you know i dedicated this to my partner's father ron who as i mentioned is a diehard abbott and costello fan he's probably listening to this episode right now hey ron yeah right hey dad <laughs> he's a diehard abbott and costello fan and you know he you know we struck a chord over it and it's so crazy because it's like he remembers these from his childhood you know what i mean and it's so cool to know that because you know my partner's father and i who really isn't into horror at all like us but he loves this side of horror the like kind of silly funny side of horror and a little bit of the monsters in addition but even like my great grandparents or my grandparents in general like i have a i just love whenever i get the chance to hear about what they enjoyed you know whether it's the music they enjoyed the shows they enjoyed the people they enjoyed it's just there's nothing like that for me and you know for him to kind of pull me to the side and be like i really love abbott and costello and i don't love like all the horror movies but i love these guys it's like well now i really need to add them on the show i mean i was gonna do so anyway because of how i feel but now that i know you like them just the same it's like i've definitely gotta add them now i mean there's no way around it at this point when I was a kid and I was into these, my dad was running all these tapes. My grandparents were so delighted because, you know, my, I, was, I was fortunate enough to have be around my great grandparents and my great grandma into my 20s. My great grandpa passed when I was five, and he was just kind of a legend in my family. How wonderful he was! Um, and they would, I still, they still to this day, every time I bring up Bud and Lou, because it's well known how much I love them. <clears throat> that um, he would, he had cassettes and would listen to who's on first and some of their best of routines, and he would just same same dang tapes. And Grandpa John would listen to them over and over and just laugh and laugh and laugh, drive my grandma crazy. And 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 I and I think that probably even just added fuel to my fire, like you were saying, like just to like that connection you have and, and, and speaking of fire, it's passing on a torch and 
you know, I hope my grandkids someday are like, oh man, Grandpa Austin loved Avon Costello. They moved from like literally a hundred years ago. And uh, check them out, they're pretty funny, you know. So I, I hear you, man. It's like, they, they loved them for a reason. Yes, they're, they're tame compared to now, but family friendly isn't tame. It just means it's accessible to everything. And that's the best kind of comedy, man. It's a, it's pun intended, a universal comedy is when everybody can laugh at it. And don't get me wrong, I'm the biggest Office fan. All that's what she said all day long. But I'm not, I'm no weird. I'm not weird about it. But, but I did improv at a family-friendly theater, and that was huge. You can, I, your grandma can be there, your sister can be there, whoever. And, they, but the, it's just amazing how it transcends. And that's the stuff that gets remembered. That's the stuff that families share. Um, and it's not kids theater, it's family friendly, so it's universal theater, and that's that's what Abin Costello represented. I love that you have the memories with them, I love that I have the memories with them, and I just wish that we could pull people in and be like, people, like, listen to what we say, like, really get into these guys because they mean business. God, I have tried so hard, Parker. You know how hard it is to be in high school and try to show your high school buddies Abin Costello movies? Oh my god. We have like Pineapple Express in theater, which I love, but I'm over here like, yeah, but watch, hold that ghost. Yeah, um, uh, I got a few friends way into them. A few friends and girlfriend or two over the years were kind of like, you know, supportive, but uh-huh, that's funny. Um, I got a couple, I got a couple. Um, but uh, and some inside jokes from everyone at least, they always laugh at least once. Um, but, uh, and I get just just like Universal Monsters, just like what anime, just like whatever you love. It won't be for everybody, but uh, but I've gotten a few people. And I'll never give up trying. So you never give up trying, and we'll get some people on this one for sure. You best believe I won't. So I want to ask a question because there's something that's very puzzling about this movie, and I'm, I'm sure this is something that people have questioned for a long time. And you said you know the answer, so I'm really excited to to learn this because all day long I've been racking my brain trying to be like, why why is this the way it is? So Austin, please tell me why were Abin Costello billed as P. Patterson and Freddie Franklin, but in the movie they used their own names, Bud Abbott and Luke Costello? Okay, so this is because I don't, it's not in the book and it's not online. I have a, what I consider to be a well-informed, educated guess. Um, I, because uh, I thought of this a lot too. What I can tell you is that, and I'm sure your DMs might tell me I'm wrong. Yes, in their radio show, they call each other Bud and, you know, and Abbott, hey Abbott. Um, I can barely ever think of a film I can't, okay, let me rephrase. I can't think of a film of theirs where they address each other by Bud, uh, by Bud Abbott and Lou Costello. Maybe Bud, maybe Lou, maybe by their middle names, you know. But not, hey, Costello. That strikes, when watching Mummy, it always surprises me because I, I'm like, whoa. Um, and, and, but the script, they were given the script. That's what the names were. I think it's hilarious. They still freaking put that in the movie at the end credits. I was like, why did you even sign with their freaking names? Um, my theory is it was their last film with Universal. They were not pleased with Universal toward the end. They felt slighted by Universal. They feel like, and rightfully so, they made a ton of money for Universal that they were gonna have one last say. So I think they went and they're like, we're gonna go by our own names on this one. Our actual names, like as almost like a signing off. Um, and maybe, maybe a very gentle professional middle finger. 
Like, I know you gave us these names, but I'm going to call him Bud. He's going to call me Lou. So um, that's what I think. I think it's just an, it's an on the way out kind of thing. It's the last film kind of thing. Um, because there's no reason. Uh, the fact that it's the last one just can't be a coincidence. Yeah, but it's, it's amazing. I agree. All right, so one more question that's really fucking creepy to think about is in this movie, as you heard, Clarice the Mummy roars and shrieks and moans and like makes all types of unworldly noises. And I really wanted to know is, was this really the first time we ever heard a mummy make any sound? And it scared me to think about that because I'm like, you know, at least Frankenstein grunts and Dracula talks, the Invisible Man talks. Creechy doesn't talk, but he's a fish, so that makes sense. But like, holy shit, is this the first time a mummy t- like made sounds? You know, this is probably going to be a question best answered by our man Stevula, um, co-creator uh, Steve Biscotti, Universal Monster Universe co-creator. He's our mummy man. Same with Joe. I literally called him Joe Mummy. Um, you know, I'm not nearly as well versed in them. I'm not films nearly as much as they have. I would venture no. This can't be the first time. I I've noticed the growl as well. I would venture to say that in Mummy's hand or curse them or Mummy's curse, there's got to be something audible. Maybe not the Boris Karloff one, but we also only see that amazing Mummy for like three seconds. But I feel like there's, there's got to be something. Uh, there's got to be more grunts and groans and. It could have also been that he was on. I also think because it was the uh, because it was not he was not on screen as much. It was maybe more pronounced. It also I mean he also does have scenes where he's with two other mummies, which I misspoke. Lou is not one of the mummies. I can't believe I thought he was. I'm, I'm an idiot. I've seen it a million times. I know Bud's Bud's one of the mummies, not Lou. Um, but uh, so I mean, let me correct that. But um, maybe in the, the roar was like, oh, that's the real mummy. So I, I, but I don't know. I think the roar just came hand in hand, pun intended, the mummy's hand. I don't know if I would, I've seen those films for sure. It's been a minute. I feel like they definitely made noises. That's my, that's my final answer on that one. If I, if I had to guess. Right. That's exactly what I said. I'm like, there's no way that this is the very first time that a mummy did this. And if it did, holy cow, you know, it's a great one in this one. Yeah. Um, it's a great one. I'm a little biased. I think Creature's got an awesome roar that's uh, a Gilman that's un- not talked about enough and never really seen anywhere else. I love, love Gilman's roar. Um, but uh, yeah. I agree. Jug and I actually talked about that last week when we did Revenge of the Creature, and I was like, holy shit, it's creepy that a freaking fish man, Gilman, that swims in a body of water can roar like that. Like, oh my god and he and i both were like about it you know like we love the roar but it's still like can you imagine hearing that shit underwater like no <laughs> i love it yeah it's i think it's done from like park pig or something yeah i love that one and i think i love the 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 snarls of the wolfman uh especially in the beginning i yeah I, I love them all i love them all um i don't know if this one is maybe a classic roar but i i love i love the mummies talking i love i want my monsters talking i don't want to want a silent monster get out of here you want them you know agreed I mean, silent stalkers are creepier, so I mean, I don't know. That's a debate for another time. Well, I mean, I mean yeah, but I mean, I mean, if it was, if it was, if Frankie didn't make a sound, you know what I mean? I'd be like, oh, come on, you gotta just, you gotta say something. But yes, I think, there, I think, I think silence is power, and I don't think Bella Lugosi should be roaring, but, um, 
I think the mummy roaring is is scarier, especially because he is so slow. And I think the roar adds a lot more menace to him. Um, who can forget the Brendan Fraser mummy? He roars, and that's one of the most classic shots of that movie. That Brendan roars right back, screams right back. You know. I get what you mean. And then in Godzilla vs Kong 2021, there was like that candid scene where like Godzilla's roaring in the face of Kong, and Kong's like, "Well, fuck you, dude!" and roars right back at him. And my mom's like, "What the hell was that?" I was like, "Mom, they were having a roar off." Yeah, they're monsters and they're roaring. That's what we went to the theater to see, man. Was just roar. That's the that's the that's the money right there. That's why that's why I gave my money. <laughs> oh hell yeah, yeah, mine too, mine too. All right, creeps, one more question. Does anyone in the creepy community or the monster fam, does anybody want to join me in Austin for a bite to eat and maybe a show at the Cafe Claris? Get the amulet burger. I would say the amulet burger is on sale. It's the special of the day. It's crunchy, exactly. They have interpretive dance shows. Like, hey, it's pretty popping, you know? So just let us know. Yeah, and like, you never know. I mean, maybe I'll throw water in your face. Who knows? Dude, we were talking, and now I don't know why I've never really noticed the mummy shish kebabs or in this movie as much, but they keep popping up in the back of scenes. Is that just like a, is that a thing? Who in, in Universal was like, you know what they have in Egypt? Fire shish kebab. Or was that like somebody who like legit researched it? Or they're just like, this seems exotic. Let's set this on fire. This makes sense. <laughs> Well, I know shish kebabs are middle, well, I don't want to say Middle Eastern, but I know that they are, um, I don't think they're based in this country, but I know that they're on the menu in this country is India. So I think it's not too far away. Um, but yeah, I mean, I definitely think like maybe somebody at Universal was a little ambitious or maybe it's like in Avengers where it's like, you know, what sounds good. Shawarma. In this case, you know, what sounds good. Flaming shish kebabs. But after you mentioned it, I was, it's like. There's like a scene, like Bud and Lou just hanging out at the table and there's like a dude like serving flames just about in the back. Like it's not, it's a tiny bit, like it's not anything. I'm like, dude, this, they're all over. There's like a prop guy setting up in 1954, whenever they're filming, yeah, it was 54, it was like Thanksgiving when they filmed this. And he's like setting up, he's like setting shish kebabs on fire giving them to waiters and stuff like that's so funny well you know what you know that trend where it's like hashtag you had one job where people royally jack up yeah i love it yeah and me too but in this case this guy had one job and he literally is doing that one job it's like hey we're gonna pay you money or maybe it's just a free cameo it's like carry this thing which is like a flame and shish kebab show it to abbott and costello in the very beginning of the movie and then whenever they're in the cafe or any restaurant for that matter show it in the background somewhere that's a funny idea that they could that this for insurance reasons or something or like the shish kebab flame guy was so staunchy and like picky about it that he in his contract he had to be the only one to hold it so every time we saw a flaming shish kebab was held by the same guy because he didn't want to let anyone else do it that's a funny idea is it the, the wrangler <laughs> the, the shish kebab wrangler that's what i'm saying man that's what i'm saying now i want shish kebab you want shish kebab yeah i go, I go for some shish kebab only if it's on fire i was about to say let's go to cafe claris that's where it's on sale well with that in mind let's move on to everybody's favorite part of the eldritch review these are the eldritch review interesting facts courtesy of imdb internet movie database so let's roll number one on november 25th 1954 the day after filming was completed, Bud Abbott and Lou Costello arrived in New York City to ride on the very first float of the annual Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. 
Yeah, I love that. I love that so much. I've heard that too. Um, I have not been able to find, which I would really love to do, um, find the footage of them in, in or even a picture of them in that specific parade. Because um, you got to remember too, I bet that was even more special for them having just wrapped up their last film, Universal. And I'm not trying to, I'm, I, of course, I love, it's my favorite one, Universal. But I'm, I'm talking about from their standpoint in that time, they were not feeling super great about it. So I think for them to literally go to a parade the next day probably felt very fitting. And they were able to put aside a lot of the stuff and really enjoy that for a moment that they kind of close a chapter of their lives behind them. They had all this, all this stuff to look forward to in the future. Um, I have found a picture of Abbott and Costello um, balloons for Thanksgiving Day uh, parade. I don't know if they were there and they could have been, um, but I've not seen them actually at the parade, but that'd be really cool to find. I agree 100%. Honestly, like I'm so obsessed with that freaking Thanksgiving Day parade. Honestly, like I'm a little picky because for me personally, I can't celebrate Thanksgiving without watching that parade because it's such a big deal. And yeah, I would totally love to see them in that parade as well, because as I mentioned, I love that parade. And like you said, it's a very, it's a very nice like send off to them because you know it was their very last time working for Universal. So in a way, like I don't know how big it was back in the fifties, but I'm sure it was still like relatively big ish. Is yeah, it kind of felt like wow, like people are celebrating us. Like that's great. I mean, that's the way I would feel about it. I'd be like, shoot, you know, I just wrapped up filming in my last movie at Universal in Los Angeles, and now I'm in New York City. And, you know, even though they're not, like, fully celebrating us, like, it's not, like, all about us. But at the same time, it's kind of, like, a little, like, claim to fame because whenever you see those balloons or those party floats, usually you see them for a good couple minutes because usually there's, like, a singer on there or, like, there's, like, some sort of, like, theme or, like, motion going on. So, yeah, I I can imagine, like, you know, they probably really felt supported for a minute there. Yeah, I think that was a... I can't think of a better way to close one chapter and begin another than go to a parade, let alone be a a featured part of the parade, you know? That parade is just so much fun. Honestly, like, I'm thinking about it now, and I'm like, I can't wait for Thanksgiving this year just because of that parade, honestly. Do you ever get to go in person? No, I really want to, though. Um, It's kind of actually on my bucket list, not gonna lie. My brother and his wife lived in New York um, and um, for about five years, and... um, they they so they got to see a few of them and in fact i think the route went by their apartment so they that they got to be pretty darn close if you i think i'm, I'm not me i've i've never been but i mean of course they were they were i don't know if they could even help i'm sure it was a madhouse around their apartment but uh they, they, they live by central park so they were like right there so they literally walked down they like walked down the stairs and walked like a block and there's this like ocean of people so i i yeah very jealous for them that was just where it was it was just right there but yeah man i agree with you that that'd be unreal to do that no kidding so number two stuntman eddie parker who plays claris the mummy previously doubled lon chaney jr as Karis in universal's earlier mummy films oh man i'm so glad you mentioned eddie parker um i've been meaning to really do a deep dive on his life for umu i don't know nearly enough but that's a name that I think we all should celebrate as Universal Monster fans. Um, yes, he's the stunt man. Um, and if you guys watch those wonderful commentaries or those movies, anything Universal, that Tom Weaver is one of my story and heroes. 
um, talks about. I've learned a lot from that. But Eddie Parker, yes, the um, the ones you just mentioned, the mummy ones. He was one of the mole people. He is um, uh, he is Mr. Hyde in the A and C, Doctor Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. Because Boris Karloff was, of course, a little bit. He was a little bit older. I don't think he wanted to be. Run- I think he did some of the makeup, but I don't think he wanted to, you know, be, run around and stuff. Because that Mr. Hyde's very agile. Uh, so that was Eddie Parker. Um, the opening of uh, Tarantula with that great uh, the guy with the, the face and the, the science experiment guy. I love Tarantula. One of my all-time faves. Um, again, 1955. Um, great year for movies. Uh, that's Eddie Parker. I mean, yeah, in this movie, he's the freaking mummy. I adventure. I think he did some other stunt work. I think he, he might have stunted. He might have been in Abbott Costello. Or excuse me, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman toward the end. One, he might be one of the, the clashing monster fights. I, the reason why I love Eddie Parker so much, because a the unsung heroes. We never see his face. That whole thing, of course. But I would venture to say that he played as many, if not more, Universal monsters any other uh, maybe any other performer uh, and I think which is call it stunts I get it there's the main guy but stunts is performing too and uh, Eddie did a lot of them so yeah big shout out for, for Eddie um, and just the amount of sheer stuff he did for Universal and sounded like he was a pretty cool dude he was like yeah cool I'll do it it was like very like <laughs> just showed up and did stuff but yeah man eddie's the man yeah just down to earth wanting to work i i love it too and i would love for you to do a deep dive in his life because I'm, i've heard his name before but just you mentioning all those names and movies i was like damn i didn't realize he had such an extensive track record and i would love for you to do a deep dive because i'm curious to know more about him so yes please yeah thank you for everything that's always a good reminder i did a little bit when i covered uh, for the tape tomb, Abbott Costello meet the mummy a few months back on UMU. For those of you who don't know, I do a, a VHS segment that celebrates the nostalgia of going to a video store on Saturday and uh, renting a favorite monster movie, which is exactly what my childhood was like. And we do that on Saturday. It's called the tape tomb. We spotlight a VHS um, every day, every Saturday. But um, but yeah, I. Uh, it's the best thing ever. <laughs> well, thanks, man. Yeah, that's that's one of my babies. I love. I, I very feel very strong about that one. But I did a little. I did a quick Eddie Parker post at the time. I actually didn't have the. the I was trying. To, I was trying to end the day with the actual VHS copy of whatever the movie is, and I did not have uh, that one. This this was actually the first time I ever played this tape. Was actually just now, which it just finished. But yeah, but I did an Eddie Parker po- appreciation post instead. But yeah, I could do it. We could, we could honestly, it's, it's an article, it's an article, uh, Parker, it, and then a post as well. But because I think that's a name that we all need. If you're, if we're monster fans, we got to talk about Eddie Parker. Speaking of Parker, definitely. Well, I'm ready for it whenever, whenever you're ready, I'm ready for it. So, we kind of mentioned this before, and I hate to kind of take a really sad turn with this, but it's honest, and we have to kind of be transparent here is Luke Costello had been suffering from romantic fever prior to filming, hence why he has a very dramatic appearance to his face. Yeah, um, the romantic fever really, really got to him a bunch. And again, I'm going to reference the book here, uh, Lose On First by Chris Costello. That's his youngest daughter um, with Raymond Strait uh, helped write it. But um, beautiful biography. Um, be- and, and But anyway, so the romantic fever was a constant thing in fact, I think it 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 hit its worst. A lot of people don't know this. It hit its worst at Lou's prime, and it knocked him out for a fucking year. 
and he was bedridden literally every day for a year. He was down for the count. Um, uh, but yeah, so, and that's, and that's, uh, man, that's really tough. And I, I do have an excerpt from the book I was going to read to you, Parker. Um, that's okay. Of course. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. So this is, this is, remember, this is from the perspective of his daughter. And this is when they actually had some money trouble. Um, and they were not in this beautiful house anymore. Um, and they were in this uh, little ranch house that they had. We seemed to enjoy a more leisurely life at the ranch. I saw more of my dad, Lou, primarily because he wasn't working as much as he had in years before. He was slowly dissolving his relationship with Universal. Abbott Costello made their last two films in, in 55, Meet the, Keystone, Meet, the, Meet the Keystone Cops and Meet the Mummy. Dad was quite ill with another rheumatic fever bout when Mummy was produced. Still, he insisted on doing his own stunt work despite medical orders to the uh, contrary. Bud's drinking had him bloated until he actually looked pudgier than my father. Considering some of their more recent films, however, it wasn't a bad picture to exit on. More importantly, it was, it was a financial success. That was a quick little that addresses that um, right on the dot. Um, but, uh, but yeah, man, uh, it hit him at times and times again. I think as he got older, I think it was also really stress induced. Um, there was stuff going on at home and there was more and more tension with uh, um, Bud and Lou and, and not like, you know, fist fights or anything. It was more just kind of estrangement. Um, and I think that fed into it too. I think, um, but I, I loved hearing that he got to hang out with his daughter quite a bit more. And as that goes on, um, that's from the perspective of Chris Costello. Um, he spent a lot more time with her, especially because she was the baby. Um, so, so even though that was kind of a weird time, she got to see a lot more of her dad, which um, he died very young. A lot of folks know that he passed away uh, in, I believe, 59. So four years after this film. It was very sudden and tragic and very strange. Um, so, you know, and so those last few years were kind of rocky. He and Bud split up, you know, two, two years after, you know, I think 57, um, and then he passed in 59. So I think, you know, even with the ill, Ill you know, the illness affecting things, I think she was really grateful to be with her dad a lot more. And, and he was doing his own stunts. That's something that that's, that's I'm, I'm giving a long winded answer here, but something that was constant about Lou was that he just never quit. And was just so badass and so generous and just nothing could deter him and um like like to like like it said the doctor's orders were like don't do this and he's like okay but i'm going to you know and that was just to make people happy that's what he was doing all that that's what the star talks about in this book all the time was dad's making people happy he was gonna do it somebody completely you know betrayed dad's trust he would trust him again because that's what he because he because he couldn't help it like so yeah, basically they say he's a big kid at heart, and that's my, one of my favorite things about him. Um, but he's the man. So yeah, so that was a very long-winded answer, but that's it. That's pretty incredible because I don't really that quote says that I read that too, Parker, but I don't really see it. I mean, especially that love that last bit, man, where he's running around the tombs and the freaking iguana thing is flying through, and man, Bud is or Lou is flying in that scene, man. He's all over the place. You cannot tell me that's a sickness. He's, I mean, like, I'm, I'm like, it like hurts me to watch him. He's falling so hard. He's breaking through walls and shit. Yeah, I have a hard time believing that he was. I know he was, but I have a hard time seeing, believing when I'm seeing that he was ill. So, just a consummate professional. Yeah, I mean, I think like you were saying before. I mean, despite the illness and despite all of just the trauma that they were experiencing behind the scenes of their show, and the fact that you know this was the last you know swan song for universal so to speak 
you know, I think really they just kind of wanted to leave it all, like, you know, athletes leave it all on the court or leave it all on the field. And I think that they wanted to do the same on that soundstage. You know what I mean? He's like, you know, yes, you know, I suffered forever and I was bedridden and I was just miserable. But this is the last time that I'm going to do something with Universal and I need to just go all out. I need to break through a fucking wall. Like, I need to do something. And he did. And, you know, I don't know how it felt. I mean, I'm sure it was foam. Obviously, it wasn't real, like, fucking cobblestone. But I think that, you know, in hindsight, I think that he did it because he knew that, you know, gotta go out with a bang, so to speak, and here's how we do it. And, yeah, I think it's really sad. It's really sad, but, you know... It doesn't matter how how old we get or how old the movies get. We will always love them no matter what. And that's why we do what we do on the Eldritch Review. Exactly. And the, if they were hurting, they and, and they insisted on continuing, you know, yes, they're being paid, but it was more than that because they did so much stuff for free and, for, and just for people that needed it, you know. And and that's why we got to keep talking about it and celebrating is is, is because they were in pain and like to watch it and you know you're talking about this is you think this movie is one of their you know the, I forgot to tell you the back of the freaking box um, uh, of this movie one lit from Variety I mean at the time one of their best comedies we have literally what it says on the back of the freaking VHS so you're not alone in that Parker I mean people really took to this one and and just and, yeah man so. And that's despite all the other stuff. You know, you're watching it and you don't know it. And we know it now, so it's easy to look it back and go, well, maybe they are this. Maybe they aren't feeling good. But, but, the, but you know, it's hard to say that after you already know it. But, I mean, yeah, they worked hard. They worked so hard. Um, and despite all the, you know, the demons plaguing them, um, they they uh, did it for the people. And, the, and, and, again, like, man, it works. It worked. They did it. They wrote the book and that book got passed on to generations and, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely, man. Well, I'm really happy you read that excerpt, even though it was really sad. You know, I really, it was essential. And, you know, I'm glad that you have that book because we're able to kind of learn what it was like from his daughter's point of view, which is very important. I can't recommend that book enough. I could, I could do a whole podcast about this book. Um, uh, please, anyone, it's out of print. It's kind of hard to find. You got to get it, though. She writes it wonderfully. It's also, Parker, an insane um, exploration of Hollywood of the 1940s and 50s and 30s and stuff. So it's, I mean, and the thing is, it's an oral history. Because she wrote it in the early 80s. So it was 25 years after uh, he passed, give or take. Um, but, or after their last films together. So, it, which seems like, which is crazy to think of that now, because now it's, been decades but a lot of the people that like that make those movies a lot of the directors the producers the fellow actors um they're quoted directly in this book she wouldn't interview them for the book so it's a really strong first-hand account of that entire era but and lure the star of it but it's but it's this but it's that whole era so yeah that book is it's it's about as cool if you're interested in old school universal stuff and the 40s and 50s and comedy and everything they did i mean that's it's it's she was right there and she writes every little bit of it oh and you know that i am so i'm definitely i know you said it's out of print and i know you said it's hard to find but if god willing i find that book you best believe i'm gonna buy it no matter how expensive it is i hound uh, ebay they're all over ebay i mean it's not crazy expensive i don't know 20 30 bucks but yeah i mean i i 
I flew through it, and you know he passes away, and it's still the way it's written. It's just heartbreaking. She, it's so powerful. You didn't want the book to end. I kind of want. It's one of those things where I actually truly wanted to start it over the second it was done. I mean, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was a very, yeah, very special. But I love Lou. I mean, my boy. My, look at my boy here, my cat. I mean, he's Lou. So, diehard fan. But I think, I think, I think, I think there are a few people that won't find enjoyment out of it. But enough out of me. Sorry. No, you're fine. You're fine. So number four in Back to the Future Part Three, this film, Mon Pa Kettle at Waikiki and Francis in the Navy are playing at the Pahachi Movie Theater in Hill Valley on November sixteenth, nineteen fifty-five. You said that's a drive-in or just a, or just theater? No, it's a drive-in. Dang it! I actually looked it up again, man. After you said that earlier, we talked about this earlier. Um, I don't know where it is. And, and there wasn't even pictures that I found. And you go to the Back to the Future like wiki fandom thing, it just says the same thing. Um, I have seen Back to the Future Part 3 many, many, many times. I am looking at a poster of it right now in my room. I don't know where that is. Because of course, as we talked about, when he comes when he comes out in the pink getup from the, the 50s cowboy store stuff, it is Revenge of the Creature, yay. And Tarantula, yay. Same director. Um, I don't know, but I don't, I don't remember the mummy. I feel like it's somewhere, but I also, ah, yeah. I gotta do a deep dive. That's gonna drive me crazy. Someone's gotta know, like, give me like a time code um, to find it. Uh, I feel like it's way more in the back um, than I'm thinking. Cause I've seen the movie a bunch and I can't picture it. And I would totally, are you kidding me? I would, uh, okay, well, let me ask you, did you ever notice it? Because if there was a freaking Abbott Costello movie anywhere in any movie, we would have noticed it, but especially Back to the Future. And I am a diehard Back to the Future fan. I can't, I can't think of it. Can you? Honestly, I haven't seen Back to the Future Part Three in a while, so my memory's a little shoddy. But I think, like, I definitely need to rewatch it because when I was talking to Jug last week, we agreed that we need to rewatch Back to the Future Part Three because of the Revenge of the Creature little cameo, and because we were gonna watch MST. 3k mystery science theater 3000 because they parody revenge of the creature in that so we wanted to make a day out of it rewatch it so i think what i need to do is i need to follow through on that offer from him and rewatch him but yeah i'm definitely gonna be watching for that i bet you anything it's just like a quick little snap and it's gone you know what i mean like you don't really see it it's not like you know the revenge of the creature poster it's more like a okay there's the drive-in theater you know is it playing you have to really look for it you know i think and part the problem parker is it might be just a, a letters we noticed the other ones because they were the posters it might just be written down somewhere like a, as a marquee and blends in with something else because I, I feel like if it was a poster we, we would have definitely seen it you know i can see that i can see that that's a good point i think honestly like i said i just need to rewatch the movie and go from there i was i was looking something up back to the future part three's anniversary it is in two days by the way fun fact for you 31 years yeah we nailed it yeah. Wow, we. All right. Well, but no time like the present. We need to rewatch it now. So number five, what the French-speaking cafe showgirl says to Luc Costello in French is, but it's important. I hope you don't take me as a fool because I'm a poor little woman who needs to work to earn her bread, but you don't need to be such an ass to be with me. She repeats the second sentence to Bud Abbott just a moment later. I read that too. Um, that That's, yeah, I... Could never have told you that's what it was. 
I'm surprised they would so blatantly put the word ass in front of an audience like that, even if it was in French. Um, but I, I mean, I'm sure the translation might give or take here or there, but I mean, that's funny. Um, that, 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 that's either like, they, they, you know, they, they thought they can get away with it, or, or they're, they're going with like a jackass kind of terminology, or they truly thought no one's, none of people spoke French to where that it would ever be known. It's, it's an inside joke, like a thousand percent. Like they know exactly what they wrote, but um, I they probably just assumed that, like, nah, it's all right. There's not, there's not, enough, there's not enough people speaking French to know what this means. We're okay. Um, which is honestly like i think like they thought like oh well she's french and she's pretty that they probably think like oh maybe like she's saying sweet romantic things to us and it's just like mm, not quite well you're right you're right that's exactly yeah that's the joke is like it's like oh but it's like something eh, it doesn't sound super sweet but yeah, that's because it's French, so it's always going to sound good. So I, you're, I think you're 100% right. Yeah, I mean, that's the only logical explanation because I feel like people hear that and they're just like, oh, yeah, tell me more. And it's just like, dude, they could literally be cussing you out. You don't even know it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Which is great. Of course, Lou wouldn't have any idea. Exactly. And then he's like, he's like, me too. Me too. He's like, he's like, I want to know what you're saying. But it's like, all right. Well, I mean, she kind of just dissed your buddy there. But yeah, you know, you can have in on it. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Lou got... Lou always got the girls and Bud was always mad about it. Yeah, that was the best. That's the best part. So that's one of the best things about those moves that Lou always got the girl. And Bud always, it was always such a great victory that Bud thought that he could and, and should. And it was a great little kind of, you know, it never really worked out that way, which I, um, of course, I want Bud to get a girl too. But his cockiness, like, went against him. And, and even if it was, like, it ended up being someone was using Lou, it was like, it was, even when I was a kid, I loved, it was it was great to see the underdog get the girl. You know, you, you, it, it, I don't know about you, when I was a kid, like that was, you know, get the it's to get the someone that you think the joke. The joke, I guess, is that they're unworthy. But and that's not funny. But that to me, it never felt like that to me. It felt like it felt like Bud's cockiness just messed, like just was his downfall. And that uh, so anyway, I don't know. I loved it. I I, I just thought that a, a win, so to speak. Yeah. No, I totally agree. So number six, even though he is the title character. Clarice the Mummy only has 7 to 8 minutes of screen time with an overall runtime of 79 minutes. This means he appears in approximately only 10% of the film. I think that's true. I think it is. I think I think you're thinking because there's multiple mummies at the end. I think if you just added up Clarice, I think it's very brief. Um, I think he's talked about a lot. I think the sarcophagus is there a lot. I think actually seeing the mummy about is, is very brief. Um, I mean, for God's sake, there's an entire scene with the superimposed iguana. Oh my God, that iguana. <laughs> God, that's like, that's, yeah, well, that, that's so good. But it, it, horrible and good at the same time. And uh, very out of place. Doesn't make any freaking sense. Um, but it's just, I think for that exact reason, it's just so shocking and funny. But yeah, man, I think if, because if, if, because watching it, I had it in the background, of course, and I watched it again last night, but just having it on the background just for the, for the, make this perfect. Um, I was, I was like, you know, it, it feels like more than 10 minutes, but we get so much mummy action, but it's not specifically Claris all that time. So I think it's why it feels like more. Yeah. I think, I think that. You know, it makes sense that he's not on the screen for very long because in hindsight, like when I watched the movie, I was kind of like, I feel like, okay, it's a little bit more about Abigail and Costello than it is the mummy. And that was even something I was thinking about while watching it too, was I was just like, wow, okay. Like, I guess the monster really doesn't, 
I mean, he exists, of course, and like he is the threat and like all these things. But like, I think in hindsight, I think it was always more about them, which was perfectly okay. So it makes sense. I think so too. I I wish there was more of it. I couldn't even tell you why there was, was the scheduling with Eddie Parker. I could I but I don't know. I really don't, that's something I would love to find more about is why. Um, yeah. So but 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 it works out. The the act the third act is packed with mayhem monster mayhem and iguanas and and running around and and who is the mummy who's not so yeah dude uh i wish he was in it more but at the same time i'm grateful for that wacky third act i agree 100 percent. i i i love the three mummies as i mentioned before and yeah that iguana i was like what the fuck <laughs> that's how you did it that's how you got honestly i was looking at it that's not far off from how they made tarantula um a little bit different probably a little more haphazard when they did it this way but i love it i have res i love it because i can't do it and i have respect for it no, I'm an animal guy. I don't want to see, you know, live animals used. Um, and that was obviously way different then. And I, I, I kind of, I feel sorry for him because often you see him like roaring and angry. They're, they're being provoked. That's more of what I'm talking about. But, um, but he seemed fine. That one's just so kooky. And I, it makes me laugh. I know I don't want to keep distracting us. So there's a shot and I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. We see this great shot of the iguana running and it goes around a corner. So then goes around the corner. Uh, Everything's fine. Lou doesn't know he's following it and he takes off after it. And he like, I think he thinks he's, I, I kind of, I think he thinks it's behind him. Cause he tries to close the door behind him and he like falls. And I'm like, guys, we're getting so beat up. And then, so we don't see Lou for a second. And you can imagine what he's seeing is that iguana and he bursts through the, like you said, not really, you know, not really like brick and stuff, but a cobblestone breaks through it. And it's so dramatic and so funny. It's this explosion. The camera doesn't cut, it's genius. He goes back there, he thinks he's safe. Holy crap, and bursts, you know, bursts through the thing. I mean, um, God, I think that's so funny. Just because, you know, he's, we know, we don't have to see what he saw. We know what he saw. Uh, um, and just that great, like, unscathed break the freaking wall because he saw a giant iguana. Like, it's like, you know, you have dreams that aren't that weird and funny. Yeah, I agree. That whole, like, it was so chaotic because he ran around the freaking, I guess you can say the tomb, or if not the tomb, like, the catacombs, which I know it's not Paris, but the catacombs. And, yeah, like, it just feels like there's, like, just something at every turn. There's, like, dead mummies in, like, one little tomb. And then he looks and there's this, yeah, the big-ass iguana. And I'm just like, oh, my God. And, then, yeah, the iguana escaped and like chases after him i'm like what <laughs> where is the iguana that's what i want to know that that how they get him i want like a prequel of where the iguana went from i want the iguana story that's what i want me too because god damn that thing was big and yeah i'd like to know where he went too because i'm like shit i bet he escaped into the sands of egypt like what on earth was the purpose of having him down there what were you gonna do with him the, you just woke the mummy up so what was the point of is he protecting your tomb like the the hallways like what was he there for I don't know. I love it. I'm not I'm not even asking these logistically because I'm like mad about it. I just like I find it so wonderful that it's down there and he's he or she is down there. And uh yeah. So not not again way off topic, which I'm gonna No, you I you know, it's all good. It's all good. So number seven, as we've said countless times throughout this entire episode, 
But there's an additional fact in this, which I'm sure you know this because you are a diehard Abbott and Costello fan, is this was Bud Abbott and Luke Costello's 28th and final film for Universal Pictures. Although Universal released a compilation film of clips from their films entitled The World of Abbott and Costello, which premiered in 1965. Yeah, sadly, Lou uh, would never see that one. But um, yeah, I mean, they had a long run and they were doing TV at the time too. So it was very contractual. They were with Universal and remember because I you should you seen me share this and I think I love sharing this because I don't think a lot of people knew this but Lou was the first person to meet uh, on screen was the first person to meet uh, the Gill Man in that great skit, I, I put the clip up of that great skit from the Colgate Comedy Hour. It was a few weeks before the premiere um, of, of Creature, and it's in a live audience. And it's supposed to be like a, a prop room, a back, a back storage room at Universal. And uh, the creature, uh, like, and it's just Lou. Bud leaves the scene. Creature bursts out of a, a crate, and the whole audience goes, "Oh!" Like, like they're very shocked, and some laugh, some yell out. It's really cool seeing the reaction for the first time. It's actually Ben Chapman, the land creature. Um, so. Uh, you could argue, and I've made this argument, that Lou Costello has uh, encountered more Universal monsters directly, the, the, of the classic monsters, than anybody. And I have another one. I have a theory that I'm gonna, I've never shared. I'm gonna say it with you for the first time, Parker. Is that I almost think Bud and Lou are um, comedies Van Helsing's. Um, how much, and we don't talk about it in that way, but especially Lou, um, they are kind of like the cinema of Van Helsing's. They just kept encountering them, and they never ever intended to it to do us what they're not quite as you know Hugh Jackman is the whole thing. But they every freaking monster, and there are some Universal monsters that are Universal monsters because they appeared with Abbey Costello in the Universal production, um, like Mr. Hyde. That's a really strong theory, honestly. Like, I didn't even think about that, you know? Whenever I think Van Helsing, of course, I always think of Edward Van Sloan getting rid of Dracula, or, of course, as you mentioned, Hugh Jackman being the badass, like, action hero, slaying all the monsters, but... Yeah, I could see Abbott and Costello being the comedic Van Helsing. I think they try to kill the monsters with comedy rather than, you know, freaking crosses and, you know, Wolf's Bane and whatever. But I really, I can see it. Uh, I'm really glad you shared that with me because now that's all I can think about. I think, well, I think the truth, the way that, like you just said, I mean, to build on what you just said, to fight them with comedy. I think the fact that they never actually try to kill anything but they end up besting them to one way or another is what makes that funny. Is that the, that's the best way the comedians win is that they won by not trying. And we're, we're, we're the other monster hunters. Um, Meet Frankenstein's a little bit dicey because they kind of different fates, but Bud Lou end up being okay. Um, they 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 survive to see another day because they run, and I think that's great. And you know, but there's moments and people don't give enough credit to them. Just like you said, just like fucking Shaggy and Scooby, where they have those great outbursts of bravery and they they do something amazing. Lou's got all kinds of those moments, um, arguably more than Bud. Uh, I mean, in the movies. And I've posted the collages with 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 Lou and all the monsters he's met. And it's it, I I I'm thinking here, except for Bride, it's all of them. Uh, maybe not fa- maybe not Phantom, but it's everybody. Um, yeah, and they've had two different scenes, um, three different scenes. Holy cow! One in me. Of, a, of like a wax museum of a horror shop because there's Neat Frankenstein. Uh, there's one in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde um, uh, where there's where there's monster uh, mannequins and stuff. 
and in that the scene I just told you with the with the kill man. So they're around monsters more. So maybe you can find some cheats in there, but in terms of actual performance with monsters, yeah, I think Lou. I think Lou has the record of being around the most actual, authentic, classic Universal monsters um, more than any other. I'd even venture to say crew member Jack Pierce. Anybody, it might be Lou Costello that has the most, which is pretty insane. That's yeah. That's no. That's more than insane. And I I would love to see that clash. I don't think I've seen it. Maybe I have. I don't remember, but. I think I think your theory was so strong in that aspect and man like that's why I love having these conversations with people like you because you make these connections that you know other people wouldn't even think of. Steven's great about that too. I love Steven's. His theories are killer. He comes out with stuff and I they legit I think he thinks I'm just blowing smoke, but when he he says stuff I'm like, "Oh man, I have to go back and rewatch that now. You just maybe you just maybe rethink the whole damn thing." Steven's killer about it. So if, if I give you anything tonight, think of Bud and Lou as comedic Van Helsing. There you go. I'll take it. And I'll think of them as like Scooby and Shaggy too, but then again, I've always kind of thought of them like that. Well, I got that from you. I don't know if I thought that quite as much, but I, I do love that. I don't I'll I'll give that more thought. I like that a lot. There you go. So number eight, this is a little bit of a goofy point, but I really wanted to share this because it's kind of interesting. I love continuity like this. Number eight, when Bud and Abbott play back the recordings on Dr. Zoomer's reel-to-reel tape recorder multiple times, they never once rewind it. They just keep pushing play and pushing play, and it just keeps playing the same thing repeatedly. I don't even know if someone at the time would have... And maybe they'd maybe I will I will I wonder if that's in the script. And they're like, nah, forget it. It takes too much time. And I I bet I would venture to say that at, at that time, no one it was a suspense of disbelief. People are just so everything they're doing was just so wacky and fun, and they're laughing too. You know, like I don't know if they're. I would imagine that that I don't think that was a mistake. I don't, or I don't think that was a. How do I say this? I don't think that was a concern. I'm sure they thought of it, but I think that was more of a. Nah, it takes too much time. I'll just, just, just keep pressing play. <laughs> I mean, honestly, like, no, I, I, I hear what you're saying. And I think that that's the truth, too. I mean, I don't, I, I yeah, I don't think people were really thinking about things like that. I honestly, I only just shared this because, like I was mentioning, I do love continuity. You know, continuity rules, as people say. And it really does. Um, you know, so for me, like, I saw that and I didn't even think about that, honestly. I was, like, wa- re-watching it and I was just like, huh. You know, because to me, like, you know, yes, I know how a tape reel works and I've seen it work and all that kind of thing. So I'm not completely naive. I'm not I'm not too young as people would think. But at the same time, it's kind of like, you know, huh, you know, I I guess it doesn't really matter. I, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, but I think that, but those are funny. Those are funny moments. And um, it kind of reminds me of. Um, Here's uh, Mark Hamill, you know, you're a Star Wars kid like me, and Mark Hamill talks about, I think they were filming the first one, and he was complaining, because of course, I can't do it justice, but Mark Hamill's got a great Harrison Ford impression, and they were filming the first one, I think they're in the, they're in the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon, and he's fussing with his hair, and he's kind of, my hair's being weird, I can't get my hair to work, and Harrison Ford, said, and Harrison Ford kind of overhears this and says, hey kid, if they're looking at your hair, we're in big fucking trouble. So I think, I think, it's, I, I think it's kind of like that. That's, that's great, that's funny, I didn't even know know that that point of star wars i'm glad that you know that um i know that they like to mess with him because he was one of the younger cast members but that's great that's really great i i always love hearing how harrison ford picked on mark hamill and then carrie fisher rest in peace princess in general picked on all of them because she's just badass like that 
I could go on for days. I could make a full-blown podcast episode about Star Wars and about our beloved General Oregana. Yeah, man. I yeah, she was uh, might have been a princess, but uh, uh, definitely definitely the queen. And I think she called the shots to all those guys. And I, and I think she was a uh, force of nature. I've only I've only done one of her books, and it was the Princess Tyrus. Um, but I, I uh, uh, which was about her time making Star Wars. But yeah, dude, she was a force of nature. I honestly like I don't like. Yes, I know her as Princess Leia, and if like I was like not thinking and people said Star Wars, I'd say Princess Leia. But if I'm like actually thinking like right now having a conversation with you, I always say General Oregana first. I I don't even say Princess Leia anymore. I always say General Oregana because it just feels right, you know. when he says uh, the Mandalorian season two is one of the best things that happened in all of 2020. That sounds extreme. That's how good it was. Number nine, when Doctor Zoomer is recording his entry. At the point where he says, look there, and he is killed, he gasps quietly. Yet later, when Costello plays back the recording at the point where Dr. Zoomer says, look there, and is killed, instead of the quiet gasp, there is actually a loud scream on the recording. I would almost put that as, this, hear me out, almost as a fourth wall thing. Um, I gotta articulate this. I think that's almost like, sometimes in Avin Costello films, you know, it's the kind of thing where the, the thing that's supposed to be recorded talks back to him. And I think the scream was a little bit of a sense of making it feel like it was a, 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 a alive. Um, kind of not the same exact thing, but like in The Grinch, where he says, I'm gonna whisper, so my, my voice won't, by the time my voice goes back, I can't hear it. And his, and his echo still goes, you're an idiot. I think it's something, it might be something similar to that, where um, it's, uh, the scream is just there to kind of embellish it. And it's, 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 uh, it could have been oversight. It could be something we're just thinking about. And it's not really a thing. I don't know, but, um, and that were, that were us film nerds are like, what does that mean? Or what is that? But it could have just been like them be like, oh yeah, we forgot that he gasped. And they, and they, you know. But I almost, I almost take it as like a. Cause there's a lot of Abin Costello gags where he's interacting with something that's not supposed to be alive, and then it becomes alive. Um, uh, so I wonder if that's something similar in that vein. That's a really good way of putting that. I didn't even think of it like that. I love all the fourth wall break references, and now that you mention it, I mean, I guess I can definitely think of it like that. I guess I shared this point because as I did with the previous point is, you know, continuity rules for me and I wanted to share it because it's kind of like a pondering moment for me, but I think nonetheless, I think that it doesn't matter too much, but at the same time, it's interesting to think about. Now, those are fun. You know, I don't mind main continuity is where's the iguana. So I, I hear you. <laughs> All right. So this next point is a little controversial and forgive me, creepy community, but I had to share this because I'm a huge history buff. So bear with me. Don't blow up my DMs. I'm not picking any sides here. I'm just sharing a point. Okay. Number 10, during production, Richard Deacon was approached by Lou Costello's assistant, Bobby Barker, and asked to sign something Deacon described as a pro-McCarthy petition. Deacon detested Joe McCarthy and refused to sign anything in support of the senator's communist witch hunts. Barker threatened, if this gets back to Bud and Lou, you'll never work on this lot again. But the threat came to nothing and Deacon continued working for Universal shortly after. Yeah, um, I'm looking it up real quick. I have the, uh, um, I have the exact quote. Um, that that's from um hang on sorry uh so deke was requested to sign my father's anti-communism pledge and it was bobby barber from whom dad sent to talk to deke deke recalls what he said when bobby approached him on the set i knew lou was thinking of america which was fine 
But I personally considered McCarthy one of the most evil things that ever happened. I refuse to sign. End quote. Bobby warned him that if he got back to dad, that it wouldn't that he wouldn't sign. Deke would um, Deke would probably never work for um, Universal Lot again. Deke's refusal was never brought up again, however, and he continued working for Universal for many years thereafter. My father probably never knew about what had happened. Um, so that's right from right from the book. Um, right, from, right from the actual actor. Um, yeah, so that's something that else kind of surprised me in the book. Um, uh, yeah, so remember, this is the early, this is 30s, 40s, 50s. Lou was a pretty staunch uh, Republican. Um, I think that is um, everything morphs and changes over the years, and I think that looked differently then. I mean, like they were talking about McCarthyism and communism and stuff. Um, and yeah, so and that was kind of a funny thing. So like. And all my types, I, you know, I told you guys that Lou's one of my heroes. Lou is insanely generous, and I mean, he would gift insane things to uh, his staff, and and people that just barely knew him, and he would never forget them. And one of the most thoughtful, generous people. Um, and uh, also, a funny aspect of Lou was that he was um, not tinfoil hat, but he was a little paranoid. I think he was, um, from what I'm, from what I've gathered, that he was very cautious about things and um he was an equal mix of extremely trusting and untrusting about things uh very protective so i think that's where it came from uh and he wanted people to sign this thing and he really thought that was the best thing to do and he was kind of the guy of power on that set i never heard of anyone being punished for it though um lou was you know he got and he's, he got he had stubborn moments and and that and that that kind of came from him like really believing something and then if he didn't believe it then that wasn't true so yeah you know that's no one's perfect and that that's kind of a a, a funny bit that surprised me and i kind of forget about it sometimes but um you know the guy stood up for what he believed in and you know that wasn't right of lou to force him to sign something like that and you know it should you should be able to work there with whatever belief you know you have and as long as it's not too you know it won't hurt anybody it wasn't extreme or anything uh, and he stood up for what he believed in, and no harm, no foul. Lou didn't, Lou didn't hear about it, or he respected the guy. For all we know, Lou respected it. It was like, well, the guy said this, so whatever. Um, but uh, yeah, Lou sometimes would say stuff, but it wasn't always what would happen. So um, super, you know, again, kept, you know, he was constantly described. Everyone that knew him as a big kid at heart. Um, and there's a million stories in there, a million stories in there I'll share with you another time. But um, yeah, I, I, but I found that quote for it. I, I saw that too and I wanted to, I forgot about that and I found it. But um, that was just, Lou had an idea and he wanted others around him that believe the same thing. So it would come down to. There you go. There you go. And like I said before, I mean, you know, I'm glad that you cleared it all up. I'm glad even more that you read the direct quote. You know, I am not... You know, I freaking hate, you know, politics and that kind of thing. But I shared this point because, you know, like I said, as a history buff, McCarthyism is such an integral part of the 1950s. It's a creepy part of the 50s. But, you know, if you're talking about history and politics in the 50s, that was a huge integral part. You can't you can't think of the 50s without Joe McCarthy. And I'm a diehard fan of the Crucible. So... You know, I felt like I had to share this, but like I said, I'm not claiming any sides, so don't think I'm I don't think I'm on any side of the fence. I don't want to have any hate mail coming to my DMs. Okay. Yeah. No. Yeah. I. I you know. I don't want it. We, that's not what we're doing. We're addressing. And that's the thing is, I. You know, I once had a friend tell me that I'm relentless when it comes to to, to the truth. 
and it first struck me when I was like, that's kind of intense. But I love that. And when I'm, if, I, if I'm crediting something on UMU or something I'm talking to you about, I want to make sure I'm well versed in it. I want to make sure I read the, the thing. And, you know, if I didn't have a book on Lou Costello, that's okay. You don't have to. But I, but I, but there's not many of them, especially so personal. And I would rather, um, you know, and we're not doing anything political. That's, it's an interesting thing. And um, it was, you know, I think being on set with Lou was very lively. And I think there were stories. I think her name was a Margaret Hamilton, a Wicked Witch and Wizard of Oz. I was going to, uh, she was, she was brought on to do a scene with him. Or I think it was coming. It was called "Come Around the Mountain," um, and in a movie come, called "Come Around the Mountain," and she was very apprehensive to do it. A because she was going to play. I don't know if you know this, but she plays kind of a witch character in that movie. She's like, I don't want to be typecast as a witch. They're like, no, 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 no. It's fun. It kind of celebrates you. It's this one scene, and she really is a witch in it. And the next one, she was like, I'm kind of scared to be this, be on set with Luke Costello. I've heard it's kind of pandemonium. And she literally said that he was a love, and that, I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but that he was just, just um, she loved every minute of it, and he was so kind. Um, so there was actually a, a legend, a mythos that built about him, and that he was a big troublemaker and practical joker, and and so and 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 come to find that it was just actually fun, and he was classy and made people laugh and did zany stuff, but never at anyone's expense and. Uh, Maybe maybe people feel welcome and heard, and so that's probably what you're describing is probably one of the only what we're talking about here's one of the only kind of interesting things. It doesn't quite fit that, but everything else I heard and there's quote after quote after quote about just on set with Lou is like the set to be on, uh, and, and you would want to be on that set. I definitely would. If it was me, I definitely would. <laughs> so that concludes today's episode of Abbott and Costello Meet the Mummy 1955. I hope you have enjoyed listening as we've enjoyed reviewing it for you. Before we sign off, I want to say a huge thank you to my distinguished guest, Austin Gilly Hill, for returning on the Eldritch Review and for being one of the greatest people I've ever known. As I've said numerous times, you are such a great friend, you're my older brother, and it's such an honor and a privilege to know you. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. I hope you had a great time. Holy cow, man! Those are really nice words. Um, no, man, I had a blast. I I will always leave with it. You know, you asked me to do a film. I'm there, um, even if I haven't seen it. You know, I'm I'm, I'm in it. I'm in it from season one. I'm in it season twenty. When we're talking about Mummy forty five or whatever. I'm I'm in it with you, man. And um, you're one of the kindest. You're one of the kindest hearts around. And you're doing it. You're doing it right. You're doing it for the fam. And uh, it's pleasures all mine. That's the short answer. Is I'm, it's, I'm touched. You asked me to do this, and I'll do it as long as you want me to. Absolutely. Well, back at you, man. You know, you're, you know, you do it all for the fam as well. You pour your heart and soul into everything, and it shows when you do Undiscovered. It shows when you do UMU with me. You know, it, that's why I consider you a brother, man. O- otherwise, I wouldn't. You know, I don't just, you know, it's not a term I use loosely. So, you know, I mean it for sure. Right back at you, my brother. Appreciate you, man. Anytime. We'll do it again soon. And I appreciate you. Be sure to like The Eldritch Review on Facebook under the name at The Eldritch Review Podcast, or you can follow us on Instagram at The Eldritch Review. Also, if you would like another way and method to support The Eldritch Review, consider contributing to The Eldritch Review's Patreon page. 
You can pledge any amount from $1 to $100 and depending on which level you choose will determine the benefits you receive. Link is in the Instagram bio to contribute. And finally, be sure to check out all of our brand new Eldritch Review merchandise on the Eldritch Merch Store, featuring all new tank tops for spring and summer, the Creep Collection Ringer Tees, and more monster tees by Austin Webb, with designs of The Mummy, The Wolfman, and Bride of Frankenstein. We also have new accessories in the store, including three styles of Eldritch Review hats and COVID-19 pandemic masks. Be sure to purchase your merchandise today. Link to shop is also in the Instagram bio. Next week's episode it will be the official season finale of the Eldritch Review Season 2, and it will feature 